Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where we review movies on a podcast. <laughs> my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I contribute to Slash Film. I write about Star Trek over there a lot. Good for you. Someone has to. I'm glad someone's yeah. finally writing about Star Trek. Uh, finally. Somebody, yeah. Somewhere. Someone's so, noticed. Some, somebody little... ought to say something about Star Trek. <laughs> We talk a lot about Star Trek. We have a Patreon Star Trek podcast if you want to check that shit out. Also, there was that 70s movie, Star Wars. Yeah. Someone ought to write about that. Yeah. Someone ought to talk about that and analyze it. What are we reviewing this week? This week... We're not reviewing any Star Wars or Star Trek. There's none of that this year. I don't think we have any sci-fi. Well, I guess fantasy. Well, last week we reviewed Avatar The Way of Water. Yes. Which is a film by James Cameron. Mm. And... As we noted on that podcast, everything's getting out of its way. Yeah. And we're reviewing a bunch of movies this week. A lot, actually. But uh, some of these ha- are like, had like staggered release schedules. Mm-hmm. Some of these are like little indie films that yeah. are sort of slipping by for award season. Yeah. None of what we're reviewing this week is is like big. Well, I would argue that one is arguably big, but I don't think it's expected to dethrone Avatar this mm. week. The movies we're reviewing this week and we are going to be doing something a little different. Usually we want we review as many movies as we can from one week and we try to wait until they're all out. Mm. Um we are reviewing all the movies that we've seen through the end of the year. And since Whitney and I are in critics groups, we've been able to see some stuff in advance. So, this is our big catch up so that next week on the Critically Acclaimed podcast here on the Critically Acclaimed Network, we can focus on our picks for the best movies of the year. However, this week, in order to get to that point, we are going to be reviewing the following movies. Damien Giselle's Babylon. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. My voice cracked. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, the new uh, Roald Dahl musical, Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical. Which, um, I assume that's for legal reasons it had to be that complicated in the title. Uh, the latest in a surprisingly long line of movies about Edgar Allan Poe solving mysteries based on Edgar Allan Poe stories, The Pale Blue Eye. Which is a reference to uh, The Telltale Heart. I do. Uh, then there is uh, the the uh, the latest Ryan Johnson whodunit, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. That actually came out for one week in theaters in November. Uh, but uh, we didn't get to it then. We we're going to get to it now. And so we now, are. Now, now that it's moving to, uh, I think it's on Netflix, the, so everyone's going yeah, to get. Yeah, on the twenty third of December, yeah. uh, it's going to be released on Netflix. Well, we're so. recording this a couple of days in advance because we want to take some time off for the holidays. So by the time this episode is live, you will have had an opportunity to see it. Uh, then there's Sarah Polly's new film, Women Talking. Uh, the documentary Wild Cat, which is about a wild cat. And uh, the remake of Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru Living, starring Bill Knight. That's right. That's eight movies. Yep, that is a lot of movies. And uh, well, we're just gonna we're just gonna kind of dive right in. Whitney, where do you want to start? Uh, well, what did you introduce first? What, what was I guess we started there? with Babylon. So let's start with Babylon. Very uh, well. It's a new film uh, from Damien Chazelle. Damien mm-hmm. Chazelle uh, is one of those lucky filmmakers who like their first features. Everyone was like, "Oh, who the, who the hell is this?" Yeah, well, he give them awards. He made uh, he made some good good yeah. features. Yeah, um, he made Whiplash, uh, yeah. which won uh, a couple Academy Awards. Uh, won um, J.K. Simmons that came over for Best Supporting Actor. That movie is kind of fucked up, but it's really great. Uh, I I really like Whiplash. Same. I, I like that it does address um, 
something pretty dark and like mm. actually argues in favor of something pretty dark, uh, which is as without without fun. celebrating yeah. it. It's, it's it, the movie basically says does negative reinforcement and profoundly and and disturbingly negative reinforcement can that push someone to greatness and we have seen throughout history people who have been pushed to greatness in art for example by for example parents who push them too hard and really mess up their kids Mm. and that film basically just says is the art worth it and it doesn't come to a particularly Mm. happy conclusion about that it's actually a very dreary and and mean-spirited in in favor (laughs) of of abusive motivation um but again without i think celebrating it i think it's pretty clear when you're watching the movie that the movie doesn't necessarily think this is good but, but it, it think it, but they think it happens. It, it, it can happen. Um, yeah. Uh, Damien Chazelle also wrote the screenplay for a film I was rather fond of called Grand Piano. This is maybe uh, my favorite film he did, just because it's the weirdest and it's <laughs> great. It's it's about a concert pianist played by Elijah Wood, and uh, he has a little earpiece in his ear while he's on yeah. stage during this big concert. Yeah, it's this big comeback. Mm. He's supposed to play the most complicated. A uh, uh, piece of music in history, and he, 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 he there's like a message on his sheet music, and it says, "Put this earpiece in your ear." And he puts the earpiece in his ear, and then John Cusack plays a sniper, and he <laughs> says, a "Sniper somewhere in the concert. It's a big yeah, concert hall, huge concert hall." It says, "I'm in. The, I'm somewhere in the concert hall. I need you to play the most complicated piece of music ever written, and if you miss a single note, I will shoot you and your fiance." <laughs> and Elijah Wood's like, "The fuck do I do?" And, I, and, and somehow they they made a thriller out of that. They made a like feature length yeah. thriller. That sounds like an Alfred Hitchcock presents episode, but mm. no, that that movie is fun. It, it is fun. It's, it's really it's, entertaining. It's really clever. It's got yeah. some good performances. He likes to make movies about uh, people pushing themselves to greatness yeah. in a variety of contexts. That's what La La Land was about. Emma Stone is trying to push herself to be a great actor. Ryan Gosling is trying to push himself to be a great musician. They meet at a time in their lives where they can be together, but their careers push them in different directions and. Mm. Therein lies the tragedy. Um, it's a good movie about being in your twenties. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair assessment. Yeah. It's, it's not a good musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got a lot of praise because it had dancing and music in it. It was about Los Angeles, but the dancing and music is actually really subpar in that movie. I would argue for the most part. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of good bits. I think the opening musical number on a highway, mm-hmm. uh, where everyone's stuck in deadlocked LA traffic and everyone gets out of their cars and does a musical number mm-hmm. because yeah, but it's LA mm-hmm. and we love it. I think it's a good opening to a movie. I think it's got some highlights, but that's one of those movies that everyone talked about and everyone loved. And I saw it at a festival before like the buzz had really built, and I thought it was quite good. And then I heard it started to get a little hyperbolic, and I was mm. like, "It's it's okay. It's, <laughs> like it's a I, good I, movie. I wasn't even that fond of it, frankly. Like, I, I think it's okay. Yeah, I, uh, like, that's as far as I'm willing to go. I missed First Man. I didn't see. Oh, it's it really in good. This film. Um, it's I, it's. I a, saw I saw uh, Dad Astra, um, the, the <laughs> Brad Pitt version of the same story. First Man is a story is a biopic of Neil Armstrong starring uh, uh, Ryan, Ryan Gosling, Gosling yeah. and. It's weird because we're so used to seeing stories in that context, something like Apollo 13, how it's mm. very inspirational, or the right stuff, and it's all about how, oh, yeah, look at all this greatness. And I think First Man is, again, very uh, Damien Giselle kind of thing. Here's a guy who is pushing himself to do something no one, literally no one has ever done before, Walk on the Moon. Um, and the kind of drive it takes to do that doesn't necessarily make you a great family man. And it's mm. kind of about the difficulty his family had with a guy who is, his job is that important and that unique, yeah. but it still creates relationship problems. It's it's a weirdly, um, 
I don't say melancholy. I think that's overstating it. But it's a weirdly subdued uh, biopic. It doesn't have any of these like big highs that you expect from something like no, you know yeah. Elvis or something like that, where it's yeah. like here are the key awesome parts. And it's like it's not really about inspiration. It's just about here's how we did it. Yeah, in uh, a very determined way. But it's a really good movie. Actually, yeah. it's actually and, uh, one of his best. And and here we are with Babylon, which is completely out of character for him. This doesn't think? feel like a Damien Chazelle. Uh, it doesn't feel in line with his previous movies because his other movies I don't know about that, actually. seem to be about, uh, like, there's themes of ambition, but I don't sure. think that's really what he's getting at here with Babylon. Mm. Uh, Babylon is uh, set in the mid-1920s. At in, first, anyway. In, it's, in a, it's a big epic. It takes place over a couple of years. It opens in the mid-1920s, uh, and it's about the film industry in Los Angeles. It's set in L.A. Yeah. Uh, the opening, I think it's like 30 or 40 minutes. It's a huge yeah. long it's, sequence. It's like a three-hour movie, yeah. so that's not that giant a chunk of the movie. And for a while, I thought, are we never leaving this house? It would be really great if we hadn't. Because but basically, it's, it's, it's uh, a huge bacchanalia mm. of a big Hollywood party. There's orgies. Mm. There's live music. There's live animals. Like, a, a, a horrible crime is committed. Like, it's mm. this gigantic... Just overwhelming yeah, sensory overload of an opening to a and, movie. Uh, yeah, there's there's and there's nudity and there's drugs and there's mm-hmm. urination. There's all everything there's, in that scene. There's an elephant uh, pooping on people. That, vividly portrayed. That's prior to the party, but yes, well, one, but of, one of the first shots buildup. of the movie is an elephant diarrhea-ing all over this poor man. There's a, there's an old 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 joke. I'm sure you've probably heard it, but in case you haven't. Uh, of a story of a guy who works at a carnival and his job is to clean up all the elephant poop, which, as you can imagine, is quite sizable and gross. And it sucks, and it's a gross job. And someone says, why don't you quit cleaning up elephant poop every single day? And the guy says, are you kidding? Give up show business? (laughs) And I I feel like he's evoking that joke. He's going to be talking about how in Babylon, you know, the entertainment industry is actually pretty wild and fucked up. Uh, but it's the price people pay for being in show business. Mm. I was actually, but it's so blunt, this movie, for better and worse. I think there are moments where it works great. I think there are moments when it's just sloppy. Mm. Um, I'm surprised he didn't just do the joke. I was actually <laughs> literally, it's so in your face. I yeah. was like, you're just going to do the joke, aren't you? Yeah. You're not going to do the joke? That's like... I, I'm trying to think that, that that's like uh, uh, somebody saying knock knock and nobody's saying who's there and then never letting yeah. and but you hear it yeah and then you just never go there and in your head you're like who's yeah, there yeah. You're, say it you're, you're not yes ending me um, the stars at night are big and bright <laughs> clap <laughs> deep in the heart of Texas I would love to watch a movie that ends with somebody going da 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 and then they roll credits yeah. Um, so it's it's this big giant orgy and uh, meet a lot of characters. Yeah, meet a lot of characters. The the three main characters that we meet and they'll be the three main characters of the movie um, mm. are three. Uh, two of them are ambitious actors who want to be part of the uh, film industry. Uh, one is an ambitious actor. One of them wants to be behind the scenes. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, so uh, we have uh, Diego Calva. He plays a character n- named Manuel, and he yes. wants to he wants to be in the film industry. He wants to work behind uh, the scenes. He wants to be a part of the movie making. We have a very. Um, uh, 
like Clara Bow, uh, sort of screen siren uh, yeah. type, uh, played by Margot Robbie. Her her mm-hmm. character is named N- Nellie Leroy, and she wants to be and, a movie and, star. Yeah, she wants to be a movie star, and uh, and she is talented. We'll learn later on. And then we we have sort of sliding down out of uh, yeah. Hollywood stardom in, uh, in a very Star Is Born kind yeah, of way. Jack Conrad, who is played by Brad Pitt. Yeah, Brad uh, Pitt, who at the beginning of the movie is already a super famous mm. movie star. He's a movie producer. He's kind of got this whole town figured out and under his thumb and while Margot Robbie and Diego Calva rise in the industry he's going to start steadily yeah. falling but because the, over uh, the course of the film the silent industry gives way to the sound industry yeah, the, uh, and everything dramatically changes yeah. in a wide variety of fronts yeah the, and the, it, uh, yeah there's there's a few like this is a series of like uh, big standout sequences so there's yeah. that opening party sequence then there's an uh, equally impressive uh, it reminded me of like like a, a particularly filthy Joe Wright shot, you know. Yeah. Joe Wright likes to have these one long take, like long yeah. flowing takes, and these big. Uh, he did it in, in Atonement. He did it in Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. He kind of did it in uh, Anna Karenina. Yeah, no, he doesn't. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, there's this big sort of sequence where uh, Margot Robbie is on uh, the set of a movie, and there's like. 18 different scenes being shot at the same time. It's all very uh, fantastic. Well, because it's not it, the way a film set actually works. But to be fair, uh, it does make a little bit of sense because it's in silent movies. Mm. You don't have to keep everyone separate. You can just be like in the same area. Yeah. Shooting something completely different. And mm. there's no giveaway because as long as the camera is only pointed yeah, at one thing, you'd never know. Uh, I, so, yeah. I, I'm no, I'm no uh, deep cut expert in yeah. like film production of the 1920s, but I doubt there was a gigantic multi-acre no. cam- outdoor camp where all the movies were being shot no, no. at once that, on the same day. That's I would be uh, very surprised to find out that that was 100% based on reality. Yeah. I'm sure there was some overlap occurring, but this sequence is very surreal because they're shooting like a whole bunch of one or two real comedies at once Mm. uh like right next to each other in various tents and like portable sound stages and meanwhile like right next to them in the background they're shooting a gigantic historical epic with like hundreds of horses and people stabbing each other and people die over the course of it and everyone's like oh that guy died oh man throw him on the pile yeah that sucks but moving on I, I, i think the idea is damien chazelle is trying to depict just sort of how He's exaggerating, of course, yeah. but it, it, just how wild and lawless it was. This, chaotic, this yeah. film has no bearing on reality. Not it's, especially. It's, it's kind of this expressionistic version of mm. of uh, Hollywood's tran- uh, transfer from silent film to sound. Uh, there's, yeah, but yeah. during that filming sequence, mm-hmm. uh, Margot Robbie shows that she actually... She like can control the number of tears she's going to cry in a scene. Yeah, she's, so she's, actually, she's very uh, talented. She actually has some talent, and she catches the attention of uh, your producers, much to uh, the chagrin of her doppelganger, who is played by um, Samara Weaving. Samara Weaving, who is actually in real life looks uncannily like Margot Robbie, and yeah, to a... the extent that I was wondering how long we'd have to wait for them to have a scene together in a movie. And thank <laughs> you, Damien Giselle, for not making us wait no. too long. There are no movies where Margot Robbie and Jamie Presley act together, but they have met on like red carpets and posed together, and yeah. they also look very much alike. They, they've got a look. And they've got a look. It's, it's a look. And uh, the, uh, so she actually begins to rise up. Uh, the 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 Calva character is 
sort of the observer. He's like the Dickensian main character, where he kind of is watching all of this happen from the side. So he's in the movie a lot, but he doesn't have a lot of agency in this story. No, he's he's often given, like, seemingly impossible tasks, and when he is able to achieve them, everyone, like, goes, oh, that guy's great, keep him around. And so he's just kind of David Copperfielding his way through it. And and eventually he rises to a position of some prominence, but ironically, that's when his story gets... Less focused. <laughs> well, in the, some respects, the, the entire movie, just like the industry, starts to unravel after a while. Yeah. So the Brad Pitt character starts to unravel after a while, and then uh, there's another standout sequence where they're shooting their first day of sound. Yeah, and uh, like they can only get one line of dialogue in before something interrupts and something goes wrong because this new sound equipment is so difficult. Well, to work and, it, with. and it's worth noting that yeah. the new that adjusting to shooting with sound was a big shift. The mm-hmm. tone on the set had to change. You couldn't say anything while the actors were acting, so directing had to change dramatically. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, uh, the cameras yeah, they had that they to had... walk to a, where the yeah. mic could hear you, that was a yeah. big part yeah, of they didn't. They hadn't figured out boom mics yet, so you had to... So actors were in much more constricted mm-hmm. and had a lot less freedom to improvise, yeah. for example. Uh, cameras and so, and were so loud were, that uh, they initially... They like wrap them in blankets and yeah. stuff. Initially, and... they had to put them in these giant blimps basically in order to to get the sound out but in this scene in this movie they haven't figured that out yet and it's in a soundproof little cabin in the middle of the studio with no ventilation and i think it might kill a guy and yes and somebody dies at the end of that scene too yeah so so this is an industry that is literally killing people and um you can see I actually saw a parallel between this and Boogie Nights. Oh, not, definitely. Uh, in that it's also about sort of the film industry. It's about the a change in the industry and how yeah. the party ends. That's yeah. kind of the oh, story of Babylon. It, it is very, um, very structured that exact yeah. way. It's got, even opens with the big party and yeah, introducing op- all yeah, the main op- characters. Opens with the big party. The, and, the uh, rising star, then the falling star. And, yeah. and, and so by the end of Babylon, we're being treated to what the party looks like. Uh, you know, it's rather than the freewheeling fun of the 70s, now everybody's sort of in rehab. Everybody's kind of outgrown mm-hmm. it. And, and the parties have gotten a little skeevier. People are going yeah. to jail for the things they're doing at the parties now. Yeah. Uh, and there's this very... Uh, I like the sequence where they meet Tobey Maguire. He appears mm-hmm. in the movie. Which is a as, very Boogie night sequence. It's the yeah, Alfred Molina bit. It's basically. the Alfred Molina scene, yeah. yeah, where he plays this kind of like ghoulish character. Yeah. It's like, come with me to this party. We'll talk to this producer. No, no, he's like on the seventh level underground and they go into like they, hell. And they do. Each, they, each layer you know, they go down. It's like Inferno even, for even a while. more disgusting. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there, there's a big sort of climax at the end where we get to see sort of what's become of everybody and who survived. The actual story of the characters starts to matter less and less as we go on. Yeah. Uh, and it's just and sort of It becomes more about the industry. It's, as yeah, a more whole. about the industry. And That's where the, the ultimate And there's this uh, kind of. Um, what, what was that, that short film, Precious Images, which uh, I think was from the late 80s? Uh, it, was the fir- it was essentially the first, like, uh, supercut film. It was a well, short I, film that was just a lot of short clips from various movies. I think, I think Joe Dante did that first. Uh, that, that was oh, that was the movie party. Yeah, he did the movie party. Uh, I'm thought. Gotta, gotta give gotta give credit. I suppose so. Uh, yeah. Precious Images was uh, uh, an Academy Award winning short, and Joe Dante uh, should have won that Academy Award. I'm uh, nothing against Precious Images. No, I'm just let, saying, let, technically, let, Joe Dante um, was doing oh, that kind of stuff first, the, who, or at least the, earlier uh, than that. I mean, let probably me look wasn't the, the director first. of Precious Images because Precious Images was actually a pretty. Uh, mm pretty important film again uh, i'm just saying that they calling it the first is might be a bit of a stretch that's all i'm saying um uh, precious images came out in 1986 yeah it's an eight minute short it's done by chuck workman and uh yeah it's just uh one second of a bunch of different movies yeah 
Well, in any case, and uh, yeah, it ends with sort of this trying to encapsulate all of cinema mm-hmm. to the point where you even get to see just emulsion on the screen. Uh, so it's mm. it's like all of this hedonism, all of this. Uh, uh, Triumphant fall and fail is all devoted to just ink on film and, uh, you know, kind of trying to encapsulate all of that. Um, uh, it's a big mess of a film. Oh, definitely. I think uh, we can both agree on that. It, it could have been... Uh, there's a way to cut a film like this into making it a little bit more focused on the story and the characters. Mm-hmm. There's a way to uh, cut it so that the characters are sort of swept up more in of a... Yeah, malaise more of, more of, of a robert altman nashville yeah, kind yeah. of vibe where it's a, um, it's it, there is no even temporarily there's no real protagonist yeah, we're just getting a sense of everyone I, I think if it had been one of those two things it would have been a lot stronger as such it's it's a little bit of a mishmash uh but i appreciate that he's really trying to give us i appreciate the expressionistic version of film history mm-hmm. that damien chazelle is giving us it's not accurate to reality at no. all there's, nobody ever lived like that but it it feels uh, there, there's a certain amount of fun I think to be had in watching all of this depravity. In addition to the elephant pooping and <laughs> and the peeing we mentioned earlier, yeah, and, and all of the sex and nudity and drugs, projectile vomiting. Uh, uh, there's projectile vomiting as well. Margot yeah. Robbie vomits on the floor and then also vomits on a guy's face. Yes, uh, it's gross and wild and strange and. Uh, you know, tests your patience, but then it tries to gross you out again, and I think it kind of does it. Yeah. Uh, I I kind of appreciate that in the same way I appreciate something like Elvis, where it's not real, but it's going for this really kind of wild, energetic version of it. And I think he mostly succeeds. I, I wish I agreed with you on that. Uh, I, I think I, I agree it's a big mess, and when it's a mess, it's usually a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, and so there are definitely things that I enjoy about this. Um, I, I think it's not nearly as controlled chaos as Baz Luhrmann's Elvis is. I think oh, Baz Luhrmann well, knows exactly what he's trying to get out of that movie, and yeah. he gets it, for better or worse. Yeah, he's also a much you know, more experienced filmmaker than eh, Fair enough, Elvis, but... You know. but I, I'm not going to start giving out bonus points for for well, being young, uh, but uh, what I what I will say is this: I think there are fits and starts in which this movie is wonderful. There is a centerpiece, and it's it, there's a line in the trailer that hints at it uh, that in this movie that might be the funniest scene I've seen in a movie. It is the part that begins with Margot Robbie yelling, "Hey, who wants to see my dad fight a snake?" <laughs> That whole sequence where she fights a snake is yeah. comic gold. That is genuinely <laughs> hilarious filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I laughed my butt off at that. But it's such a gigantic endeavor. Yeah, this I mean, film. It's trying to co- it's like encapsulate some, some so side, much. Side characters have little miniature arcs yeah. over, over on the. It's trying to end. cover so much material, uh-huh. uh, and it's trying at the end to say, "Well, here's what we were getting at." And I feel like what you were getting at wasn't worth the effort that we put into mm-hmm. this because it ultimately feels a little trite when you all put it down into one big montage at the end like the film does. Yeah. But um, I feel like you, you said it would be better if it was more focused on characters and story or if it was more focused on, uh, what was the other thing? Scenario. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, sometimes I get this question. This is like a conversation starter or a mm. Twitter thing or... Uh, Name a movie that would have been better as a TV series. And the oh, right. first thing that comes to my mind now is Babylon. There's okay. so many, there's so much it's material here. Could, this could have been like a, a, an eight episode thing At least. on like HBO. And it would have been, I think it would have been a lot stronger because mm-hmm. these things would have had the room to breathe. You could have done a whole episode that was just the party. You could have mm-hmm. done a whole episode that was, and I think when sometimes when these things transition to new elements, it 
I, I lose what I was interested in completely. Oh, okay. There are characters, unfortunately, and this is, you know, unfortunately true in the industry that people of color were mm-hmm. often like pushed off to the side or considered, yeah. uh, you know, niche type films. Um, I feel like this movie in trying to illustrate that mm-hmm. uh, through uh, characters, uh, Lady Fei Zhu mm-hmm. is a Chinese American uh, actress who uh, also works behind the scenes. Um, and um, uh, Jovan Adepo has uh, yeah. he plays a, a musician who ends up getting a movie career as well. well Lady Fei Zhu is the character. She's played by uh, Lee Jun Lee. I'm sorry, I, yeah. I'm just getting it all mixed up. There's mm-hmm. too many people in this movie. Uh, but Jovan Adepo plays Sidney Palmer. He's a jazz trumpet player, and uh, Lee Jun Lee plays Lady Fei Zhu. Uh, but uh, the movie doesn't know what to do with them. They have very little. Mm. I, over the course of the film, and the movie just kind of like pushes them off to the side, yeah, and I and feel like well, that's it's, rude. <laughs> it's, well, it's those characters that make me wish this was a little bit more like an Altman film, because if we yeah. had a lot more of these sort of like little asides of these sort of side characters, and they were just part of a bigger tapestry, then it wouldn't feel like they were being shoved off to the side. They would have felt like part of the tapestry. In this, yeah, yeah they they're you know supporting players in that we sort of see miniature arcs we keep coming back to them from time to time but they're not important to sort of the central narrative of the movie the, the yeah the the movie is about the three main protagonists yeah and and but it's still trying to keep all of these people together it's no. trying to do some justice to mm. people outside of that unit uh and i think it whiffs that completely uh, i think it is when it is chaos when it is bacchanalia it and when it is uh, sort of impressionistic, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah. When it is, and, and unfortunately, then it will also try to be sentimental, or then it will also try mm-hmm. to be conventionally melodramatic in a very Star is Born kind of way. Yeah. And that's when it starts to feel trite, and that doesn't stand well next yeah, to think, the descent into hell. doesn't stand next yeah. well next to the snake think, fight. Uh, it feels like the, the movie is trying to... Have its cake, but then also eat hot dogs. Like no, <laughs> you're, you're doing we, something we, wrong. We need gelatin. Um, there's, uh, I think, the weakest part of it. Weirdly, is the Brad Pitt story. Yeah. This I because that that's the one that's the most down to earth. It's the one that's not about the bacchanalia. It's about how he's sort of uh, backing out of the bacchanalia. Um, you know, yeah. the, the first thing that happens is, uh, you know, he, he's, he divorces his wife on camera in his first scene. Yeah. Uh, and his wife is played by, um, uh, Olivia Wilde. Yeah. She's got so, one scene in the movie. There's, she's there's, out, there's yeah. A, yeah, a lot of like little stars or, or little parts for big stars kind of passing yeah. through. Uh, and his idea is, okay, the party's sort of over for me already. What, where do I go? Like when we cut to Brad Pitt, everything's a little bit too calm. Yeah. And in this movie, that's getting a lot of its momentum for being like wild and crazy. It needs yeah. to stay wild. Yeah. It's like parts of it are just very conventional. Yeah, Hollywood yeah. tells its own story in an attempt mm-hmm. to create a legend about itself so that the parts that do feel maybe not modern and contemporary, if, any, if anything, they feel a little immature. All of these, just these gross out sequences. Yeah. It's like, Hey, what if we did this the time that we sort of deify and put on a pedestal, but I add projectile vomit. Mm-hmm. Like, cause it's also gross. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I, I get it. It's, little blunt i think we can all agree on that oh i'm, I'm not it's, arguing that it's yeah not blunt i guess but... my point is like when it when all is said and done because it feels so unfocused and because he's trying to do so much so many different things that don't really connect very well mm-hmm. thematically or stylistically or even in the performance style um it feels 
like an eight hour epic that got condensed to three mm. in a really awkward way. And unfortunately, what it boils down to in the end, in the final scene, uh-huh. um, without going into specifics, uh, it makes me feel like I, sh- I could have been watching a better movie and I wouldn't well, have even here, had to leave the theater. Here's, here's I wouldn't what, have to um, leave my couch, sorry. This is a film that I... Uh, they make reference to Singing in the Rain in this movie. Yeah, and, several um, scenes in the movie are very... If you've seen Singing yeah. in the Rain, you'll recognize, oh, this is like that scene in Singing in the yeah. Rain. This uh, Singing in the Rain is another movie. Uh, it's from the 1950s mm. about the movement from uh, silent era mm. to uh, to sound. Uh, and that film is all smiles. It's it's very slick, Mostly, very yeah. clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's it's a comedy. It's it's, yeah, it's poking fun at Hollywood without taking it down a bit. Uh, uh, and it's and you know it's it's Gene Kelly, who is unbelievably talented, and you just kind of want to slap the guy sometimes. It's always, <laughs> Stop grinning. Why are you smiling, Gene Kelly? Stop being happy. You make me so mad. I don't really want to slap Gene Kelly. Uh, <laughs> I want to kiss him. Uh, Very I, handsome gentleman. <laughs> but um, if you sort of like balance Singing in the Rain with Babylon, like the truth is in the middle there. One is really kind of a sanitized version and one is like an over-the-top gross-out version. Right, and I just wish Babylon would pick a side rather than trying to do everything. Mm. And I, I feel like that's where it feels... They're they're both I, they're both overwrought. True. They both contain sequences that can be removed. Singing the Rain both, has uh, one. <laughs> Babylon has like an hour's worth. It has two. There's two dream ballets that we can remove from Singing in the Rain. There's one dream Ballet that we can remove from singing in the rat in the rain. No, there's there's the love dance between he and. I like that one. I think, but that's that's establishing their connection in a in a musical way, as opposed Um, to the gotta dance sequence, which is basically and now and now my character in this period piece imagines himself in the future and he's in New York. 117 minutes of gotta dance. I mean, look, it's it's absolutely beautiful and magical. It's just weird that it's in the story. Um. But anyway, th- th- we we should move on. But uh, basically, what it boils down to is Babylon is made with a lot of talent, and there are definitely parts that I'm glad I saw. This is not a wash, yeah, uh, because within this movie there are sequences, five, ten minutes at a time, performances, you know, great shots, for example, uh, that are absolutely worth checking out. But I think the overall sum total is a lot less than the sum of its parts. And um, I, by the end of the movie, I was kind of annoyed at it. More than okay. else. But but now that that annoyance has worn off a bit, I am glad I saw it. There is right. some good stuff in it. Yeah, I, 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 I was a little bit uh, taken away mm. by uh, just sort of the excess and the depravity. I, I yeah. admire when a, a filmmaker tries, at least, sure. to uh, do something a little bit uh, out over the edge. And I think Damien Chazelle did it throughout certain sequences in this movie. Uh, yeah, but as I said, it's... It, in, in throughout, it's a little bit too much of a muchness. Fair enough. Let's talk about uh, the other probably big theatrical release uh, this week. The one that's expected to reach big audiences. And it's part, mm. of a, it's part of a huge franchise. My God, I could not get that sentence out. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Puss in Boots, colon, The Last Wish, which is the sixth film in the Shrek series? Uh, sixth of... Uh, feature film release because there are four Shreks and now two Puss in Boots yeah uh, six theatrically released feature films Uh, Shrek Shrek 2 (laughs) Shrek the 3rd Shrek 4 Ever After Puss in Boots and now Puss in Boots Last Wish not forgetting anything um there have been a lot of short films. Oh uh, yeah, but I'm well, talking about but, features. Um, I'm specifically features. Yeah, there, yeah. There, there, uh, unless you want to count Shrek 4D, which was released in amusement parks. I don't. Um, so Shrek. 
uh, the original Shrek was based on a children's book uh, by William Steig, and it was supposed to be uh, just a litany of disgust. Shrek was an ogre, and uh, I think there's a line of dialogue like Shrek didn't get out because God hated him. Wow! Uh, like I never read the book. Like That's Shrek, the, the, it's just like here's another page of Shrek doing something horrible. Here he is eating mud. Here he is breathing <laughs> fire on his bride. Oh, that sounds great! <laughs> yeah. I want to read that. And uh, and they adapted the, kid, the little the little mean spirited kid to me wants to read that. that yeah, it's fun. it's like this this the, mean little book. Like the, the kid uh, who liked uh, like the true story of the three little pigs. Which is all about uh, how the wolf got framed, <laughs> <laughs> and it was not fair. Like, except maybe he was. And then, of course, there was the Stinky Cheese Man and other fairly stupid stories. Uh, I, I read that. That one, was, yeah. same author did that. Yeah. It was great. So I, I was always a big fan of you know because we grew up with fairy tales and we grow up a lot of the times with them in their most neutral state. You know, this sort mm-hmm. of the, the the edges have been sanded down from the original, more frightening versions, uh, and they're just kind of. Iconography mm. to get passed down to kids so that they'll recognize it later when they're an adult. So taking those things down a peg uh, can be really, really fun. Mm. The original Shrek uh, was a little uh, acerbic for its time. Mm. Nowadays, it would probably be considered pretty passe, but it did kind of bring that level of we're doing a kids' movie, but we're making fun of the fact that we're doing it. Into the contemporary lexicon, and oh, uh, it was I, an I, unexpected I, yeah, hit, and it did I'm, really well. I'm going to interrupt you. I, I just found the page from the original Shrek. Um, ah. Shrek decided to marry whatever this thing is. <laughs> no priest would officiate because God hated Shrek <laughs> for being alive. Oh my God! <laughs> so they used a crocodile, and there's a crocodile officiating their wedding. Wow, that is a hell um, of a thing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the Shrek book. Uh, okay. It, that became a meme. Well, I. I I appreciate what Shrek was trying to do. Sure. The first movie. Uh, I think the first movie's good. It, it, got, li- it got blown out of proportion, it, I think. It, it but I think it's a way, good movie. It got way, way overexposed. But yeah. um, it, it's it's kind of a cute send-up of Disney. And because yeah. it was done by Katzenberger, he used to work for Disney because mm. it was a DreamWorks film. Uh, it was a very direct sort of shot across the bow in, in the Hollywood At uh, the fights. time, and it's really hard to convey this now, mm. at the time it felt a little renegade. At the time, it felt that way. Yeah. Uh, but then it, it became but the institution also, immediately. Yeah, the unfortunate thing is, A, Shrek is not repellent. They keep saying in dialogue that he is, but he's actually this big friendly face with big blue yeah. eyes. And, There's a scene where uh, he's in a pond and he farts and there are bubbles. And I'm like, like, and so do I. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not that gross. He, he, Everyone he, farts, you know that, right, movie? Like, he should belch and, like, like catch, a, like, a crying child, like, something yeah. he ate or, well, like, he, or, like I a think, bite I think the it. fish I'm, die in the pond or something, something like, like that. Something like that, yeah, Which is, like, I get it, I get it, but also, that's the condition, and he should get that checked out. Yeah. The, like, the, I feel bad for him. Like, he should probably adjust hmm. his diet or something. Yeah, something the, the, maybe uh, he's lactose intolerant, and, like, he needs to start taking some lactase when he eats yeah, cheese. The, the idea yeah. of, uh... And then I'm speaking of someone who's lactose intolerant, by the way. That's an actual... <laughs> It's the, an actual the thing. idea we of, can kill of fish. sending up Disney fairy tales yeah. became part of the Disney brand, weirdly enough. And they yeah, did films like Enchanted and, and Frozen, where they yeah. actually talk about that sort of thing in dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they made a bunch of Shrek sequels. They became inc- very tiresome very quickly. Yeah. Uh, in the second film, we got to meet Puss in Boots from mm-hmm. the old Italian fable. Played by Antonio Banderas. Antonio Banderas. The, the best part is Antonio Banderas. He's very, as, very funny. As casting, because... 
He's there for it. He's not. Yeah. He's not sleepwalking through this. He says, oh, "Yes, I will play Puss in Boots," and he has yeah. you know, brings very colorful voice performance. The, the the version of Puss in Boots that we get, because if you're familiar with the original story, he's a cat who wears some human clothing and helps a hapless rube trick an evil guy into giving him all of his land and titles and everything. And it's um, a cl- clever kind of yeah, um, Reynard the Fox kind of a very very much yeah. so. Um, but. Um, in the Shrek universe, the idea is Antonio Banderas is basically playing his character from Zorro. Mm. He's handsome. He's debonair. He's a ladies' cat, uh, and uh, but he's also a very cute cat. And so they play that up a lot when he needs to like he he may be dapper and debonair and good with the blade, but his the real like thing he's got in his back pocket, the trick he has up in his sleeve is doe eyes. Mm. And it'll make you go, oh, okay, you can't stab me. I I do love uh, when in a comic strip or a cartoon about anthropomorphic animals, when they do animal stuff. Yeah. Uh, because it reminds you that they are animals. Oh, yeah, there's there's that wonderful bit in um, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, mm. where uh, Snoopy's dressed as the World War One flying ace and Schroeder's playing the old World War One songs. Yeah, and he gets really really emotional and he starts howling like a dog. Yeah, and then covers his mouth like he's really embarrassed. Oh, like I broke character. Yeah, shit, I'm a dog. <laughs> Uh, so I like when Puss in Boots does cat things. Yeah. Puss in Boots had his own movie. Uh, the first movie is weirdly intense for a kid's movie. There's a uh, there's a joke Does about... he go to, like, the, the giant's castle in the yeah. sky from Jack it's, and it's, it's a heist yeah. movie. He's, he's, right. He and uh, Kitty Softpaws and um, um, Humpty Dumpty and a couple right. of other fairy tale characters are all trying to steal the gold. Uh, and they're all betraying each other, and it's reasonably entertaining, but I remember watching this, and there's like a joke, um, Humpty Dumpty, I think it's played by Patton Oswalt, um, he talks about how he'd been like, I think he'd been betrayed by, it's been a long time since I've seen it, I think he'd been betrayed by Puss in Boots, and he ended up in prison, and he made like a joke about like what they do in prison, and I'm oh, like, this like is a, a kids movie. A drop, that's really drop, fu- dropping yeah. the soap joke. Yeah, yeah. that's a very uh. dark joke for a kids movie. And by God, did they make it? And that was weird. So the whole tone for that movie is really off for well, me. That, that's but that's been sort of uh, DreamWorks animation in ge- generally speaking. Yeah, there have been I, some I, good ones, but yeah. for the most part, they leaned really hard into. A very, very annoying kind of... Uh, Try to hip, slip things in for hip, the adults. Hip slang and adult talk in these kids' movies to the point where the kid movie doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. It's like winking references to adults and nothing else, and yeah. they're not bothering to make an adult movie. Just make a I, movie for adults if that's what I, you want to do. I concur, and I think uh, I think Puss in Boots is not a great example of that Working. I don't think it does work in the original film. The new one is an odd beast, though. Um, it's been quite a few years since the last Puss in Boots film. I think it's been about almost 10. So, uh, last was 2011. It's been 11 years. Oh, it's been 11 yeah. years. Holy shit. So it's been a long time. The The, the franchise has to, been moribund to, for a while. To the point where you can hear the, the actors' voices kind of age. Yeah. And uh, the plot of this one, and it's a, it's a good setup. I'll say this right now. I think it's a solid setup for like a kid's Puss in Boots movie. Puss in Boots is a daring adventurer, and he has a lot of wonderful adventures, but at the beginning of this movie, after a huge fight sequence with basically the Grendel from Beowulf, um, he dies. Hmm. Comically. And then gets up again, because he's a cat, and he has nine lives. But what he didn't realize, until just now, is that that was his eighth life, and the next time he dies, it will be permanent. Hmm. 
and all of a sudden he is going through this massive existential crisis. He's basically been given the Puss in Boots version of uh, he's been told he has a terminal illness. Hmm. He's been mortality to him, baseline mortality, the kind we're all used to, is to him a death sentence. Yeah, and he meets death. Yeah, death, death is, is a character in the movie. Death yeah, is played. Like, death is a wolf, wolf with like has a black cloak and two sickles. Yeah, it's yeah. Like not not scythe, but you yeah. know, close enough. He's, he he's and he's going to fight and kill Puss in Boots, and death hates Puss in Boots. Actively because, hates because him. Because of his immortality. Because he's been so... It's not even that he has nine lines. It's that he's been cavalier about it. He hasn't respected death. <laughs> so Puss in Boots has to flee from... I, I like from that, him. though, that, he, that death is mad at him. I, 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 don't eat, I don't disagree with anything as a premise. Logically, it all makes sense. Um, Puss decides to run away and go to the cat equivalent of this in this movie of an assisted living facility, which is living with a cat lady who has like yeah. three dozen cats. Yeah, so that that's like the animal. He's a cat, so he, he's yeah. an animal person. And so he's given up wearing human clothing, and now he just eats bland, dry food and, and sleeps and, and poops a, in a litter box. Grows a cat beard. That part's kind of funny. Uh, but basically, it, it, life turns into an indeterminate like limbo state mm. of generalized misery and despair. Mm. And then he finds out that, you, you know, like... Um, the when wish, you wish upon a star, the wishing star from Pinocchio, is, yeah, is, is an actual has, has fallen to earth, and, and it has and enough juice left. Wish, in, yeah. It has enough juice left in it for only one wish, and everyone is trying to get it in a very good, and, uh, and it's good, a, the bad, and the ugly treasure hunt kind and, of way. And yeah, it's in a faraway place, and yeah. people have to adventure there to, to through dangerous lands to get to it. And everyone is after it. Uh, Kitty Softpaws, played by Salma Hayek, is after it. Uh, Big Jack Horner, hmm. uh, played by John Mulaney, is, is after it. Uh, yeah. And Puss sees this as his miracle cure. Yeah, he wants you know, like, to. Yeah, I, I, I will go yeah, off to get some kind of like magical he, treatment for my terminal disease, and it will magically heal it's, me. It's, it's. He needs a one-up mushroom. Like he just needs an extra life. Um, yeah. And yeah, the the adventure is pretty standard stuff. They they tr- go into a land that changes depending on who's looking at a map of it. Yeah. Which uh, doesn't result in the kind of imagination you might think. It's it's a neat idea. The idea is that whoever has this magic map, Mm. the path that they take will be specifically catered to them and the lesson that they need. Their expectations. Yeah. Yeah. The lesson they need to learn, basically, Mm. will be them. So uh, if Puss in Boots has it, there will be certain obstacles to overcome. If Kitty Softpaws has it, there will be certain obstacles to overcome. And if their cute dog sidekick has it, it's actually an incredibly easy road because yeah. he doesn't got, have anything to learn. He's actually pretty happy and content. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of a like a, a cliche dummy character. Yeah, but yeah everything's gentle in his mind, so the, the land yeah. becomes gentle. Uh, the adventure stuff is disposable. It's, Mostly, it's yeah. not not really all that I, important or well well done or exciting. I, do I don't like remember the, any of the action sequences. Yeah, like they're all vapor. What I remember about the action sequences is they they've changed uh, animation styles when the action gets really fast. Yeah, where they pull frames and make it look a little bit jerkier, like at mm. stop motion. Yeah, and I think that actually helps the the clarity of the thing. I actually it's really not just like visual chaos. I like that style. Mm. It's the same style that uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse uh, popularized. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think was in Spider Verse actually like used it very very cleverly because they actually kind of like 
shifted that style mm. gradually over the course of the film. Mm. Puss in Boots, it just kicks in whenever there's action. Mm. That works too. Yeah, we're, and it we're looks really fine, cool. Yeah. It's a good looking yeah. movie. I will yeah. say that right now. I also particularly like they're not ter- they're not terribly important to the story. Mm. Uh, but Goldilocks and yeah, the three bears played, played by Flor- Florence Pugh as Goldilocks. Yeah, she's great. The whole and, character, fun performance. Uh, Papa Bear is played by Ray Winstone. Uh huh. Who's just doing Ray yeah. Winstone's voice? It's Mama Bear Olivia. Uh, Olivia Coleman is that who it is? Is it? A li- I thought it was Amelda Staunton. Oh, m- one or the other. Um, <laughs> someone played the character. It was. It was Olivia Coleman. It was Olivia right, Coleman. Yeah. So, like, so the idea is that Goldilocks is uh, has grown up with the three bears. They've essentially adopted her, and uh, she's become the leader of them as a gang, and she is trying to use them to help get the wishing star. And what they don't realize, and the audience says pretty quickly, is that she wants to wish for her family back without realizing she has a great family. Right. It's sweet. It's a sweet, it's a sweet, it's Uh, obvious, but whatever, it's a kid's story, I'm not mad uh, at that. And Big Jack Horner, meanwhile, is... uh, Just evil. (laughs) He's evil, he kind of resents that he didn't get a fairy tale, he's just a nursery rhyme. (laughs) Uh, and and so, not even a particularly interesting one. So yeah, just uh, oh, I ate a pie. Oh, what, what a good boy am I? So uh, this idea He's that been he, rebelling against he, it. he gets a pie, he became very all he gets is pies. He's always been very spoiled, so he has no moral compass whatsoever. Yeah, he's been like murdering fantasy creatures and keeping them in a collection. And he like no, he uh, steals their like accoutrement. Yeah, like, he like, like cuts off unicorn horns and stuff. Yeah, he like he like grabs uh, Mary Poppins carpet bag, which can carry anything, and just mm. shoves magical items and various fairy tales in it to go on the adventure. My uh, uh, my favorite bit is when uh, he finds Jiminy Cricket, who yeah. is only slightly less terrifying than the one we got in Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio. Yeah. The one that uh, Jessica Gordon-Levitt Oh my god, this is kind of another Pinocchio that we got, isn't it? Uh, yeah, because Jiminy god Cricket is in it. And Jiminy Cricket is like, oh, I'm your conscience. And we realize very quickly that Jack Horner has no conscience whatsoever. Like, Jiminy like, Cricket is gradually people. just horrified by this <laughs> and, guy. And he's like driving Jiminy Cricket completely insane. That's a good running gag. There's some good stuff in this mm. movie. The thing about this movie mm. that kind of just makes me not enjoy it. Okay. And, and again, I don't think it's a bad movie, but I just yeah. don't particularly enjoy it. Is that the fundamental story is pretty grim, I think, even for a kid's story. And I don't mind grim kid stories. Right. But I think tonally this one's weird because this one is is very much about being old mm. and how assisted living care facilities are just awful and soul sucking. <laughs> and when you get a terminal illness, yeah. it's really really sad. And you do everything you can to try to survive because mm. uh, death is a horrible thing. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a really dark place to start your story Mm. to to use that as the fundamental thing we want to talk about and it makes the overall fantasy of it this i want to get this MacGuffin. it makes it not like a fun adventure or even just a plot-centric adventure Mm. it makes it feel desperate to me (laughs) it's like i it it, it just makes it I, i didn't enjoy watching puss in boots go on this adventure i just felt bad for him mm. in a way that wasn't entertaining and I think the movie was trying to be entertaining and in fits and starts it really was mm. but my overall takeaway is this is just a bit of a downer and I don't think it's trying to be so I don't <laughs> well, think it quite it's, works it's a story about mortality I've sure. seen plenty of adventure like kids adventure stories too about you know death defying and facing mortality yeah, characters die really in your Disney face films all the time this, one's uh, about, this one is about the existential fear of it in a yeah, way that most mm. of those stories are not 
Uh, watch, Again, I'm not, watch, saying, I'm not even saying that's terrible. It just watch, didn't. Uh, it didn't work for me. Watch here. Marcel the Shell, but um, I did. That's okay. a great movie. But that's that's, that's also very directly about mortality. And I and, and yes, and, and, and it live, doesn't have and it, and I don't think that the dying relative is a big part of that. And I don't think that movie is trying to entertain kids with fun cat action sequences. I suppose and stuff. Not. I think I think that one is more consistent I, about I, its I, tone. I think. Uh, well, I, I think the tone is fine in something like Puss in Boots. In fact, uh, that's kind of all it has is just this really kind of rather flat uninteresting tone uh, yeah. I, the, the adventure story is is fine it's yeah. mildly distracting but I, I, all I can say is that it the idea of of like the Shrek universe being this like broad send up of like fairy tales and fairy yeah. tale universe is, is totally gone now yeah. like that that's not even part of it anymore no, it's, it's just, just kind sort of like, like sm- go, somewhat reimagining it and then doing it yeah. in a in a different context yeah. it's not it's not about it's not about parody anymore yeah there was a that era of parodying sort of Disney is kind of over because Disney bought into it. They're yeah. just doing it themselves now. Um, there was a, a CGI film that uh, was kind of okay that came out around the same time as Shrek called Hoodwinked. Oh, I never saw um, that. Yeah, I, heard that it, I heard it was clever, but the animation style wasn't very interesting. Well, they, they clearly didn't have a lot of money. It's, yeah. it's CGI and it's, it has that sort of like round, shiny look that like yeah. CGI of the era had. Um, so yeah, the, the, the animation is, isn't that great, but yeah, it had a, a little bit of wit to it. It's about as good as Shrek. Mm. Um, just, you know, on a much lower budget. Uh, and that was also trying to sort of take the piss. Yeah. Puss in Boots isn't trying to take the piss and it's just sort of telling a, a pretty standard adventure story. I like the Death Wolf. Um, yeah, I, the I, I like cool. the adventure stuff. Yeah. I like like some of the gags were pretty good. Like I said, the Jiminy Cricket. I, I think it's funny, incredibly but, um, attractively animated. Yeah. I think especially when they when the style shifts, mm. they just do it in a really smart, effective I way. Like, it's I a like very the, pretty film. The scenes where Puss in Boots gets excited, like his eyes get really big. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm. It's completely forgettable. There's yeah, not, that's, nothing it, really to latch onto about it. It's we trying, talked about it for too long. It's trying to be about such heavy shit, and then it just ends up not really feeling like much. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it could have been worse. I'd say it's one of the better films in the franchise, but overall, I don't think it's a particularly good franchise. No, it's I'm, like I'm it's not, okay. I'm not but... fond of Shrek. I, I felt that first. The first one was a little bit witty, and then the second one's like as a movie is okay. It's got some really uh, clever, yeah. fun stuff in that one. It, it's I like it's where a, they, uh, it's, a, it's really awkward as a story. Yeah, there, there was a scene near the end of I think it was Shrek 2 where uh, they needed to assault a castle the mm. characters had to break into a castle Yeah. And uh, but because it's a fairy tale they had uh, gingerbread man magic so they baked like a 30 foot tall gingerbread man yeah, and he likes he's like crushing like, things like Godzilla yeah and, uh, like yeah. That, that's kind of cute that's some um, fun stuff in that movie there really is There's, all of them have something kind of fun or clever or an interesting imagery or something in it um, I don't want to say any of them are like a complete wash or anything but they feel frustratingly insubstantial. Like they exist. Mm-hmm. Like their existence is a joke. Yeah. And in in retrospect, they're trying to add some depth to it because well, people grew up with it now, and we need to. <laughs> we need. And now they mm-hmm. want to feel like they haven't been duped by yeah, by a really insubstantial series. So we might want to add I don't know some pathos or something. And it's mm-hmm. like it's not really what you did. You made something that was kind of by definition a little surfacey, mm-hmm. and it took on too big a life of its own uh, maybe for its own good anyway what do you want to talk about next we've got a few right. films that i've seen I'll one film that only you've seen and two more that we've both seen uh tell me one of the about we'll take turns you do one and i'll do one all right uh 
Let's talk about Glass Onion. And I'm, tell, I'm, tell I'm, me about Glass Onion. I'm frustrated you didn't see this because I really like this one a lot. Yeah, um, uh, this is the latest film from Ryan Johnson, uh, who uh, has made a lot of films, most of which I like. Hmm. I think Brick is a really, really great debut. It's a film noir detective story starring uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, set entirely at a high school, but hmm. it feels very like dark film noir the entire way through. There's no like, there's like it's, one or two kind of funny a... scenes, but it's not a joke. It's yeah, really it's... dead serious about it. And well, it it my frustration with Brick is. Uh... Hmm. It was designed to be too clever by half. Uh, it, it, the idea is like there's all this weird lingo and this weird kind of patois yeah. that all of the characters have. And uh, there's a great bit where uh, Richard Roundtree plays like the principal, uh, and uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is called into his office, like he's been called into the commissioner's office, uh, and he gets to say lines like, "If you don't like the way I'm doing things, then write me up or suspend me." <laughs> and I'm like, "That's a funny. That's funny." Yeah, I no. laugh. But there's actually, I think, there's some really good actual drama. There yeah, about I, people who are young, but they still feel like they've seen it all, and there's something really sad about that. Yeah, it, I think it's it a very, feels, uh, very depressed movie, but in a way that speaks to me. It, it feels a little too screenwriterly for me. Yeah, like it's, it, it can't find it's that. not interested in in the actual darkness of it. It's more interested in being mm. sort of peppy, and yeah, uh, and it's not as peppy no. as it, as it thinks it is. I don't think it's I don't think it's trying to be peppy, but I see your point. Mm-hmm. Um, he also had a really great con artist movie that uh, I, it's probably the least viewed film in his filmography, mm-hmm. as near as I can tell, called The Brothers. Blue. Room. Which I haven't seen. It's, it's really good. I, I remember thinking to myself, I really didn't know what box this movie fits in, and then I realized it's its own box. It's just this really interesting uh, story about uh, love and brotherhood, and the attempt to use the the art of the con as a means to tell a narrative story with satisfying character arcs for everyone involved. Like, the whole plot is that these brothers try to con people in such a way that at the end of the con, the people have gotten something out of it kind of meaningful to them, so that it doesn't matter if they lost their money. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I don't need my money anymore. I have achieved enlightenment. And there's something really just clever and interesting about that. It's a really good movie, which one more people saw it. Uh, he did Looper, which I think is half a good movie, and I think it kind of falls apart in the second half. Uh, he, he did something else. Too, too, too many ideas in that movie. Yeah. The, the mechanics don't make any sense. Yeah, yeah it, it's got flaws, but it's it's interesting. And then he did Star Wars The Last Jedi, which I think is fantastic. That's one, it, it's, that's it, one of my favorite Star Wars movies, I, really. I think, I, I get why it's polarizing. There are things even I don't like about it, mm. but overall, I think it's one of the most ambitious and challenging Star Wars movies since the first. Probably the most mm. ambitious since the first, and I admire that. Well, what I liked about uh, his take on Star Wars mm-hmm. is that I feel like his Star Wars movie is about Star Wars fandom. Mm-hmm. I think it's about this because uh, if you think about it, Star Wars is a war picture, right? Wars, yeah. Star Wars. There, yeah. There's going to be battlers, good guys and bad guys. Satisfying for a movie, or maybe two or three. Yeah. Forty years on, there's still wars being fought. There's yeah. something really sad about it. That. Is sad, and I think that the, movie the, is sad. And the movie actually like has the gall to say, "Can we finally just end this shit?" Because and he's talking about the war within the movie, but also kind of like Star Wars as a franchise. There's there's a line that George Lucas said <clears throat> in one of like the behind the scenes. Mm films or special features of Star Wars where he's talking about the parallels between the prequels and the original trilogy and he mm. says it's like a, it's like poetry it rhymes and <laughs> I think a what notorious line. and I think what Ryan Johnson is saying is that that's not a good thing that's sad within mm. the actual narrative that people are trapped constantly repeating mm. the exact same things over so and over what, again what, and what the is, most exciting thing we can in, in yeah. a Star Wars universe if evil will always rise again and you're yeah. just destined to keep on failing and I think The Last Jedi is really exciting for trying 
trying to say, what if we broke that cycle? Yeah. What if someone actually said, this is not good that we keep doing, even if it's the bad guy, this is, we can't keep doing the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again. We have to find a new way to live. We have to evolve mm-hmm. over time as people. And I think that's really exciting. And I think that really gave Star Wars the opportunity to become as extemporaneous and exciting as it was when it first came out. Mm. And then they put out episode nine and it was the exact opposite of that. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. We're never doing that. We're we're getting back into our comfort zone. Except they're doing it with Ander and Ander is fucking amazing. So, I don't know. I'm glad people are enjoying Ander. I wish they'd enjoyed Less Jedi more. Mm. Um, But right after that, he did a movie that I think a lot of people consider to be his big breakout and that's called Knives Out. And, and I like Knives Out a lot. I like so Knives Out a lot. I, I, I like straight, Knives Out. Straight up whodunit. Not, it, not, it is. Not ambiguous about it. Not a send-up. Not mm-hmm. a, a riff. It's just, no. a, just a straight up whodunit. It's cleverly constructed because there's actually kind of two central mysteries in it. One is who 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 did that? Who who done that? Who done it? Uh, <laughs> but the other thing is there's an element of it that is a mystery. We're trying to suss out the w- how this crime took place and who was responsible. But... He also constructed within that narrative, and because it's a whodunit, I'm not going to come out and talk about it directly, but there's an element that's a mystery, and there's an element that's a surprise. Uh-huh. And there, when you think you're trying to suss out the mystery, you might actually be suckered in to the surprise, which you probably can't predict. And as a result, you get to have that, he gets to play fair, and have all of the clues point to exactly the person I was... Unfortunately, a little ahead of the movie, and I guessed who did it, which doesn't yeah. make me smart. It just means I was paying attention, and I and I guessed right. Well, th- and um, that when when you can guess, sometimes it's a little ups- uh, can be a little upsetting. It can be, especially when uh, the film presents you the solutions in sort of this big dramatic twist. Yeah, and that's the moment you're supposed to be shocked. But right. if you figured it out, then it doesn't have the, the well, impact. If that's all the movie has, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. If knowing, it, and that's the thing. Movies with a surprise ending, whether it's a whodunit or a twist or whatever, uh, that don't work the second time you watch them, don't work. Because they have to sort of get you to sort of focus on other elements of the narrative the second time you watch them. Mm. And fortunately, Knives Out, I think it's really ham-fisted about its social commentary. Mm. But it is about something other than just who committed a crime. It is yeah, yeah. trying to talk about uh, uh, class, class and... and, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the final shot of the movie clever. Is, is very nice. It's clever. Um, so... I was ahead of it, but I didn't mind too much because overall the characters were entertaining and excitingly drawn. It had a really, really wonderful ensemble cast. Um, and yeah, it worked. Mm. I think Glass Onion is better. Okay. And that's saying a lot because Knives Out is a good movie. Uh, Glass Onion, once again, stars Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc. Uh, he is a, uh, a rather cartoonish uh cartoonishly drawn you know southern detective with a very thick drawl mm. uh that's i think it's like I, about Sel- as respectable yeah. as peter sellers is french <laughs> as far as i'm concerned like I, we know what he's doing uh-huh. we're just gonna let him get away with that we're fine with it okay fine um and it t- it starts out and again i don't want to give away too much but i'm going to give you the setup um it's in the middle of the pandemic which i appreciate oh and it's, it takes place in the present pre- okay. it, well it takes place like a during lockdown Actually, okay. like right towards the beginning of the pandemic, and all of the characters are uh, isolating. Okay. They're they're in lockdown, uh, and a character played by Ed Norton, a billionaire, a, a, a alleged genius 
along the lines of, you know, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, that kind of someone people tend to talk about in rarefied airs, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. Um, he invites his closest circle of friends, people he's known for many years from all walks of life. So there's uh, an influencer and fashion designer slash model played by Kate Hudson, who is fucking hilarious in this movie and if there was any justice she'd be up for an academy award just for being funny <laughs> um we've got uh dave batista plays like a twitch influencer who uh is like giving like sexist diatribes about like manliness all right they're not good people uh <laughs> they weren't in knives out either no no, all, no they're all terrible people no no they're both stories very very much about class and how uh, rich people are Basically awful human beings. Yeah. Uh, there's Catherine Hahn who plays uh, a politician who is in bed with Ed Norton's billionaire to try to help her drum up money. Uh, and then there's also Janelle Monet, who used to be an associate of theirs, but is now on the outs and no one's entirely sure if she's supposed to be there or not. Mm -hmm. And then mysteriously invited is Daniel Craig's character, Benoit Blanc, who doesn't know anybody there. And what it turns out is they have come out for a mystery weekend where Ed Norton's character has devised a really ingenious multi-level uh, uh, mystery experience for them all to try. And Benoit Blanc's going to get to try as well. And sure enough, I won't say what happens, I won't say who, an actual murder is committed okay. amidst the fake murder. Hmm. And they have to figure out who did it. And... God, is it clever. Like, I, I actually, like, it, it's weird because much like Knives Out, it's centered around both mystery and surprise. There is stuff that is 100% play fair, pay attention to the clues, you can figure out who did it. Hmm. And I did. Okay. But then there's also other elements where I was like, oh, I didn't think, you, oh, 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 that's clever. <laughs> that's fun. That changes the context of everything I've seen. And... I always felt like I was on my toes. It's a wonderful ensemble. They're very, very fucking funny. And the overall takeaway of the film is just as acidic about class as Knives Out, if not more so. Okay. Um, the ending of this movie, without going into any detail whatsoever, feels like the best kind of rebellious, chaotic destruction. Okay. Uh, there's a thing that happens that I'm just like, did they do that that's i'm amazed they let the characters do that that's kind of wild and fucked up but you're making a very distinct point um so it actually comes together i think stronger than glass than uh than knives out um right. uh, i think the cast is just wonderful uh the production design is really like um it's really sexy in this very uh you know Agatha Christie movie kind of way. We're going to find a gorgeous locale, oh. a really wonderful building, and we're just going to put a murder in there, and it's going to be great. Um, is that a really good year for whodunits? Yeah, well, there was also Death on the Nile. Which was pretty good, was I pretty thought. Good. Yeah, I, yeah. I think once the mystery gets going, that's when it gets good. Like, yeah. The, the whole, it takes like, a little long to get The, the get opening to is actually yeah. like really clunky and even kind of ugly. Yeah, uh, but once it gets like, going, but, but like, actually, like visually ugly, not yeah. conceptually. Uh, I still haven't seen um, See How They Run. See How They Run is... I heard it was cute. Uh, it's cute. It's, it's yeah. a clever premise that yeah. I think could have had a lot more energy, yeah. but yeah. I, I didn't... And I been, I want to try to get to this before the end of the year before we do our best of the year because it seems like it's up my alley. I didn't see Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. <laughs> uh. Uh, it, it's... It, it's... 
so full of hate, that movie. <laughs> it hates its characters nice. so much. Uh, but then uh, we also had Confess Fletch, which I also mm. caught up with recently and is wonderful. Confess Fletch is awesome. It's so damn good. Yeah. And then there's another whodun I'm going to be reviewing in a minute that also comes out this week, also on Netflix. And it's also, spoiler, it's also good. All right. It's been a good year for whodunits. <laughs> and I think Glass Onion is... One of, if not the best. I haven't seen them all. all right. uh, so if you like Knives Out, do not miss this one. It's really, really good. I had a blast watching it. It's incredibly clever. It plays very fair. Mm. Um, it's it's astounding. I want more of these. One, Put one out every two years. It'd be great. It'd yeah. be great. Um, I would love to see a crossover between Benoit Blanc and Brana's version of Poirot. Oh, that would be really great. The, uh, the, the, you'd have to have time travel or something to get there. Or just they're in the same era right now. It doesn't matter. You don't, you don't have to explain it. Just they're in the same room together. Grandson, and it's fine. He's also played by Kenneth Branagh. Looks exactly alike. Acts exactly alike. We'll never know. His Paulo is my father. Yeah. You, you look exactly like him. What's your name? Hercule Junior? No, no. Just both Hercule Paulo. Yeah. And that weird accent that he's doing. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Glass Onion, absolutely delightful. Uh, it's one of one of my one of the most entertaining movies I've seen this year. Just okay. just from beginning to end, I had a great time, and I had a great time without feeling like I was being pandered to because the script really is genuinely clever. There's like two things in the script. Uh-huh. That and they're little tiny things, where I'm like I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure this tracks, and I really want to interview Ryan Johnson, to just ask, hey, remember when that character said that one word, and that feels like based on the context we understand later in the sh- in the movie, they might have said a different word instead. What was up with that? <laughs> was that a was, was was there something I'm I'm not thinking of, or was that an just to misdirect the audience? Where did that come from? There's like one or two tiny little details that I'm not 100 sure they track, but that's really really good for a whodunit, mm. considering how well thought out every other line of dialogue in this movie is. Um, yeah. Okay. So what do you want to talk about next? Uh, well, I didn't see any uh, murder mysteries. Okay. But in line with Puss in Boots, I saw a movie about mortality. Oh, good. I'm so uh, glad. Tell me. Tell me about Living. I'm going to tell you about Living. Uh, yeah, Living is a new film by uh, a director named Oliver Hermanis, uh, who is uh, a South African filmmaker. Mm. Uh, the screenplay is written by Kazuo Ishiguro, who wrote the novel The Remains of the Day. Yeah, which is... Novelist. Uh, I've never read the book, but the movie is one of my faves of the 90s. I it's think so Kazuo good. Ishiguro also did the screenplay for that I, one. I want to say yes. I'll look um, that up. That's, that, that's worth knowing. Um, but yeah, uh, this is a direct remake of Ikiru, uh, mm. Kurosawa's film from uh, um, 1952. Yeah. Uh, and Ikiru the, uh, means to mm. live, so it, it even has the yeah. same title. Uh, Katsu Ichigiro did not write the screenplay to The Remains of the Day. That was written um. by Ruth Prar Jabvala okay. and uncredited rewrites by Harold Pinter. Oh, no kidding. Oh, yeah. Wow. Right. wow. Yeah. In retrospect, uh, that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, uh, the story of, of living and the story of Ikiru are identical. In fact, this is almost like scene for scene, beat for beat, a remake of Ikiru. Um, oh, so then we can we can knock this one out quickly then. Kind of. <laughs> uh, if, if you know Ikiru, you know living already. Uh, it just sort of transposes the action to 1950s England. Okay. And the main character is played by... Uh, um, Bill Nye. No, in, in the original. Oh, the original. Uh, Takashi Shimura. Yeah. Uh, played... Uh, just this sort of everyday salary man, the guy who works in a really boring office. He's surrounded by papers and file cabinets. 
Uh, in the remake, he's played by Bill Nye, uh, so he's he's in a bowler hat. That's kind of the only difference. Uh, and a lot of what we learn about this character is said by all of the characters are around him. These kind of unimportant, kind of unnamed characters who just sort of describe who he is. And they just describe him as being a very good worker, very quiet, keeps to himself. No character about this guy. Mm. Uh, at the beginning of Ikiru and... It's actually held a little bit, a uh, little bit more of a secret in in living. Uh, this character is dying. Ah. He's dying of stomach cancer. Yeah. In in Ikiru. and uh, and he is suddenly facing his mortality and doesn't know what to make of his life. He's been an efficient worker. He's mm. never really aspired to be much. Uh, he has some money saved up. He briefly in both versions tries uh, like a bout of hedonism. He's going to go out and drink and going to go out and spend time with ladies. And uh, he meets this young man who kind of in both versions mm. teaches him how to like party a little bit and let loose a little bit. Uh, he offers to buy things for this guy, but this young guy is like, mm, I don't want to really, really want to exploit this guy's moral about it. And the Bill Nye character also realizes that hedonism isn't really his thing. He's not enjoying himself. That's not really what he's all about. He meets a young woman in both versions. Uh, and it's not really about him falling in love. It's about po sudden potential hmm. for falling in love. And the idea that he actually has the capacity to reach out and touch something. That's what makes him feel like, wait a minute. There is, uh, it's capable to, reach out and touch the world. It's mm. capable to leave a mark. Um, about the original, uh, Roger Ebert once said, not only is it a film about learning to live life and touch things, it's one of those rare films that might actually change the way you live yeah. uh, because of the way it has you thinking about life and your way to connect to other things. Ikidu is, without hyperbole, one of the best movies ever made. Living is a cover of it. Yeah. It's a cover song. We're hitting all the same beats. There's uh, some good if, cover songs out there. Yeah, absolutely there are. And the problem is I, I've seen Ikiru a bunch. Mm. I know the movie really well. So I knew exactly where it was going. Yeah. I can't be surprised by There's like sort of a narrative twist near the end of the movie. Mm. I, you know, I knew it was coming. It was just sort of interesting the way they do it. Um, yeah. To go back to Hercule Poirot, Kenneth Branagh, mm. when he did Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. I knew the the solution to that. Yeah, it's it's a it's, very it's one of the best selling books. Like, yeah. like people, it's and honestly, the the solution to the murder on the Orient Express, the mm. who done it, like when you find out mm. what happened, one of the cleverest endings of any murder mystery I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, uh, but once you know it, you know it. <laughs> like if you can't unknow it, yeah. so. Uh, the movie had better work on another level yeah, if it's gonna and, be if it's gonna justify remaking it. And I, and I think uh, it does. I think you know characters yeah. and camera work especially. But it's, it's, it's so uh, one. It's so it's got a, such a wonderfully like vibrant cast of characters that Brandon knew what I have to do is get fun actors to play them, and then it's just a matter of just like this. Sidney Lumet made the film in like yeah. 1973 around there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that too also had this uh, fun big cast oh, of incredible. Actors. Like uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman won an Oscar for that movie. Um, it, it, I think Brandon was a smart play for that because he understood that knowing the ending shouldn't ruin a remake or a restaging. Yeah. Uh, it's what happens is you just have to make it really fun to watch different people do it than you saw before. Yeah. Uh, living is a little bit more of 
a, a big warm hug to the original rather than mm. trying to uh, maybe like a, a new staging of it, a new yeah. kind of concept that's being brought to well, it. Well, does, even... does the recontextualization of changing countries mm. have any heft? Does that change I anything think, meaningful about it? I, I think in both cases the idea is in both england and in japan in the 1950s there is a certain kind of vocation that draws a very withdrawn type of a character sure that's kind of the only thing i can really draw on but you well, could you could really set that anywhere yeah so um, basically if you're not going to change the context mm. even by changing the context uh the question then becomes why and i guess well, it, i guess it, the answer becomes is is, is it, i is it just we want new people to see it and they might not see an old movie? I, I, I don't sense that kind of mercenary thing. That that mm. was that unfortunately happens far too often where yeah. a, a, an international film will become a big hit and some American studio will say, well, we need to make that in English now. Yeah. Well, we have it already. We don't yeah. need to make it in English. Exactly. You, you, don't, you don't need to have another girl with a dragon tattoo. The original was great. And it came out like a year ago. Yeah. And you put it in theaters and it made money. It was already a hit. It we was reasonably it. popular. I, I think that's a big part of the reason why that movie didn't make money. People mm. saw it. Yeah. And, and it was really good. Nomi Rapace should have been Oscar nominated for that. Yeah, amazing they, Then they, they remade it in English and it was way less interesting I would argue uh, a lot of people love that movie I don't get it I don't think it works nearly as well as the original no no, no. I mean no, it's no, it's no, more not, attractively not photographed I guess, even the but, main yeah. even the main character that kind of like defanged yeah. her a little bit yeah it's weird uh, but uh, I feel that uh, living is going to move you if you're not intimately familiar with EQ because it has the same heft it has the same messages it has mm. a really great performance at the center Bill Nye's great yeah. he usually plays these kind of outsized characters he plays yeah. big funny characters yeah uh, it's nice to think him to get an acting role yeah, now, now he actually gets to play a part and change his voice and be really kind of subdued in this role and he does it wonderfully yeah uh, but it, it's one of those we have we have this already we yeah. have one yeah we don't need another uh, I, I felt to to make another completely inappropriate comparison when David Gordon Green made Halloween. Yeah, it's like we we have that we we did it already. And back in nineteen seventy eight, <laughs> you're just doing the same thing. Like you're do, you're doing it well. It's, bit, you know, you yeah. got John Carpenter to do the music again. It's got yeah. you know, some of the same. Kind I would of argue he's. Moments, I would but, argue that movie is doing Halloween H two O again more than anything uh, else. Yeah, I suppose but, so. Yeah. But but regardless, like it does feel like a retread. He, yeah. He's going so close to John Carpenter's style in that movie. Yeah. He's just sort of covering John Carpenter. It's like Agreed. we don't need that. We yeah. have that already. I'd like to see and David Gordon so, Green do it next time, please. To do well, yeah. Sure, no, no, so. no. Like, no. I meant Halloween. <laughs> If oh. you're gonna do Carpenter, cool, but can we can David Gordon Green come out to play? He he, he did. He did Halloween Ends, and people didn't uh, like that movie no. as much. <laughs> Touche, actually, but all right. Halloween Ends is very but, much a David Gordon. Green uh, let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. If someone wants to see mm. this story, it's been done at least twice. Mm. Ikiru Living. Uh, would you tell them to skip Living and just see Ikiru? Would you tell them to see them both? Would you tell them to see Living first? Always see the remake first. Okay. Never, never watch the original first. Never uh, watch yeah. the original first. Don't read the book first. See the movie first. See the newest thing first. Uh, then work backwards. Then work exactly because uh, uh, it will be you, harder to appreciate. You, the you will stuff. not be burdened by uh, by the adaptation. You'll let the, the mm. film that you're you're seeing first will uh, stand on its own, and you'll have to let that film stand on its own. If it is making reference to the other things and you don't get it, mm-hmm. then that film failed. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like. Um, 
If yeah, so if something's being remade, don't bother <coughs> to go back to the original and see what the mood was supposed to be because then all you'll be doing is a comparison game. I, what if? And I'm, that's I'm exactly what I did with Living. I've, so I've seen that backfire love, though, mm. where people even like a, a not particularly good version, like the remake of Total Recall, mm. that becomes what that is. That's the definition. That's the the Plato's Cave version of that story in someone's oh, head. That's uh, the baseline. And yeah, then Plato, even Plato's, even Plato's, more, ideal, not Plato's Cave. That's something different. What am I thinking of? A platonic ideal, right? Platonic I don't know idea. what I was thinking. Yeah, platonic still, still ideal. Still Plato, but not yeah. the cave. It becomes the platonic ideal <laughs> yeah. of what this thing mm. is. That's the baseline. And I think there's a trap you can fall into where, where deviations from that, even if it was the original and you're consciously aware of that, feel wrong. Mm. And you become locked out to versions that might be doing something even more interesting. Yeah. Admittedly, that's a subjective opinion, but I saw that new Total Recall. I stand by this one. That one sucked. <laughs> no, it's not good. But yeah. if if you've seen neither and you're not familiar with what Total Recall is about, mm. uh, you can you can see the remake first uh. and not be disappointed by how different it is. You'll you can, be disappointed by all the other well, things. You'll be about disappointed it. by yeah. its okay. bad filmmaking and its okay. convoluted story instead. Nah. You know that that is always my approach is that you should always see the newest thing first. If you're unfamiliar with the original, because you should be able to see it in its own context rather than the context of the original. Granted, of course you don't always have that option. The older you get, the more likely it is you might've just read something or seen something. This, this that, is specifically yeah. for people who haven't seen the original. Yeah, it happens. It happens all. I, and I've never seen it. Kiru. I know that that is a shameful thing to say. Some might think for well, a film there's, critic. There's all, uh, all of, we There's all have holes. all all of yeah. film history. There's some things I haven't seen, and I like uh, I like keeping a few of the big ones in my back pocket to watch mm-hmm. later, so I don't have them all behind me. Also, it's um really plays into some subjects that trigger a lot of my like anxieties, <laughs> specifically death and dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've never really been like, let's watch Ikiru well, today. It's, like, it's, but it's, it's, it's right up your alley. It addresses death and dying. It's about No, mortality. addressing death and dying is, is the opposite of up my alley. Not but addressing death and dying is my personal but it's, favorite. But it's about looking at those things and finding connections and finding hope and reaching out and touching the world and leaving a mark. It's uh-huh. like, is it it's about, about achieving over... it's about achieving actual immortality at the end where you don't die? I, yes, yes it is. Oh, well then I want to watch it. That, then that, that is up my alley. Thank you. He, he I want le- to completely he avoid he, it. He learns that he has skills for mixing elixirs <laughs> has this rare bone of a unicorn okay. that he mixes into an immortality potion this that's, is actually how, the, that's how kurosawa's film ends there's, actually, there's um, magical unicorn elixir this is actually a weirdly good segue to the pale blue eye so i'm gonna take it <laughs> go for it okay so uh the pale blue eye is the latest in an unusually long line of films in which edgar Allan poe the actual the author, famous yeah. author who wrote uh, beautiful but very grim poetry, uh, <coughs> terrifying and, tales of terror like the Pit and the Pendulum, the and, Black and Cat, love, love poems and songs. I, I was as getting well, to that. Yeah. He wrote love poems as well. He has been argued uh, to have essentially invented the detective story as we know it mm. uh, with his Murders at the Rue Morgue, uh, which was about fifty years before Sherlock Holmes came out, and the detective at the center of that is kind of a template. Mm. Um, one of the most famous and one of the most influential writers, especially in the Western canon. Yeah. Uh, so you, you don't even have to have read an Edgar Allan Poe story to know Edgar Allan Poe, which is pretty impressive for an author. Uh-huh. And because he wrote a lot of genre fiction that was very influential, he wrote horror stories, wrote crime stories, in addition to other things, but people know the horror and crime better. Um, there's this weird 
temptation to create this kind of historical fan fiction around him, wherein he gets swept up in a tale not unlike something Edgar Allan Poe would write. Yeah. Uh, this goes back pretty far. The earliest movie I could find... There were silent movies about Edgar Allan Poe, just biopics. But the earliest movie I could I could uncover that did the gag where Edgar Allan Poe solves mysteries or encounters the supernatural, anything like that, mm -hmm. uh, was from 1951... Okay. Starring Joseph Cotton, Barbara Stanwyck, and Leslie Caron. Oh, and it's weird. like, how do I not know that movie? It's called The Man with a Cloak. Joseph Cotton plays a guy named Dupont, which is the name of the detective from uh, uh, Murders of the Rue Morgue. And he gets swept up in a, in a murder mystery, basically. And the whole thing is, his name is Dupont. I think he's got a pet raven. And the twist at the end is that this guy who looks exactly like Edgar Allan Poe and acts exactly like Edgar Allan Poe and has all the accoutrements of Edgar Allan Poe is, brace yourselves, Edgar Allan Poe. All right. Uh, then we took a break for a while, and there's a lot of other examples of like historical fiction-type movies where people fight monsters or solve crimes. But in the last ten years or so, we actually had a weird glut uh, in particular, we had the John Cusack film The Raven, directed by Louis McTeague. No, James McTeague, sorry. Louis, mm. I think of Louis Teague, who did Cujo. No, James McTeague yeah, did he, The he, Raven. He did The Raven, he did V for Vendetta. Uh, the Raven isn't very good. It's not very good. The premise is sounds fun. It sounds mm. pulpy fun. Uh, it's towards the end of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's career uh, and life. He died too young. Well, the... Uh, uh, it's actually based on a fact about Edgar Allan Poe, mm -hmm. where uh, he went missing yeah. for several weeks before he died. He was he was missing for like three weeks, and then they found him on like a park like bench. dead on a park bench in Baltimore. Yeah. Um, so they decided to say, "Hey, how did Edgar Allan Poe really die?" Well, it turns out there was a serial killer who was inspired by his works, and he was enlisted by the police to help catch this serial killer because no one's a bigger expert in the works of Edgar Allan Poe than Edgar Allan Poe, and that led to a big elaborate game of cat and mouse, and that's kind of disrespectful if you think about it. Uh, it's, it's also like, just not particularly good movie. It's, <laughs> it's not it's, very it's clever. Not, not it's, particularly good. The yeah, script it's really is blunt. John Cusack, bless him, is really trying to do something there, but I couldn't yeah. tell you what the heck it is. He's 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 uh, action Poe. Like, it's not really. Yeah. He, he, he doesn't, I, he doesn't have the melancholy I think you need. I understand uh, why the impulse to turn Edgar Allan Poe into a man of action. Sure. Because he led a, a sad life of alcoholism. Yeah. He, he drank himself to death. Basically, yes. Uh, and uh, he was always incredibly miserable by all accounts. Uh, it's not just gleaning from the poetry. This is like no. biographers no, he, pointed he, this he, out. People know about Edgar yeah. Allan Poe. He wasn't, he was, and, he, uh, people, he was around. There where, are actual accounts. Where was he during those three weeks? He was on a bender. Yeah. He was just drinking and drinking There's and no... getting into trouble. He was in debt. Yeah. Uh, people didn't like him around yeah. town, around Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, it was only until after his death that he became a literary celebrity. No, he was he was no he was a bestseller. People knew yeah. his stuff, to be fair, but uh, he wasn't. Like, he didn't maybe become he an was, icon until he was his published death. and he was making money. But yeah. he, he gambled and he drank it all away. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. So, like people, it's, pe rather it's, than people forget sometimes that he wasn't like uh, Monet. Not was, was it Monet? Van Gogh. Van Gogh. People think people you know Van Gogh very famously, even though he was a genius, was not popular or successful in his time. Yeah. Uh, it was only after he died that people fully appreciated his work. Poe was a reasonably successful author. He just pissed it all away on booze. Yeah. Uh, and and other than, life tragedies that sapped him of a lot of his 
happiness. Just the know. idea, rather than think of Edgar Allan Poe as uh, as an addict, yeah, as an alcoholic, uh, and and uh, mm. kind of a, a real a, a, tra- a, a, a real person, a real person with real figure, problems. Yeah, they they sort of mythologize him by giving him some agency, yeah. letting him do something a little bit more adventuresome. Yeah, uh, cheering up his life for him, as it were. Which I don't it's, think it's, Poe would have been okay. No, with. he would not have yeah. been. It's it's like the same impulse that uh, well, like what. Any movie that's about like the Salem witch trials yeah. uh, in recent years has been oh the witches were all real yeah They're, that's and, fucked up and I understand that impulse too because the idea is these were victims of a horrible crime the teenage girls that were hung mm. by uh, or, hey. yeah what 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 if uh, what if what we if, what empowered if they, yeah them? what if we gave them power what if we gave them the magical energies what if we could give them like revenge powers the yeah. problem is most of those are about the witch hunters and about how they were right to murder those teenage girls yeah even even uh, a film like Hansel and Gretel witch hunters which is some fun elements in a very Gilliam-esque kind of way mm-hmm. um it it does say at the end well yes but there are good witches mm-hmm. but you're also saying that there are evil witches which kind of justifies mm-hmm. the mass homicides that were yeah, essentially yeah. committed it's it's not well thought out. It, you see the nugget of cleverness in there, mm-hmm. but it's not very well developed. And I had this uh, problem very, very much with a film that came out earlier this year called Raven's Hollow, which, just like The Pale Blue Eye, is not just a story about Edgar Allan Poe solving a mystery. It's specifically a story about him solving a mystery as a young man when he was a cadet at West Point, which is true. He actually was. Um, Raven's Hollow involves uh, Poe and a, several of his other fellow cadets uh, they are on horseback, they're riding from one place to another, and they stumble across a corpse, and when they find out that the nearby town is kind of cagey about it, they get swept up in a mystery that turns out to have some supernatural elements to it. And on one hand, you can kind of see why that would be kind of intriguing, and you might want to watch that. Uh, but by the time that movie argues, or rather makes as a plot point, like a literal, literally, this is what mm-hmm. it says... Uh, that uh, Poe's substance abuse, his his uh, uh, addiction, mm-hmm. uh, what he, he began it because it gave him the power to fight monsters. Oh my god! Is very very much in poor taste. Yeah. Like it's just not. Uh, if you care about Poe, you're th- you're probably thinking to yourself, "That's fucked up." Actually, to yeah, just sort of say I, like to justify that in that oh, weird. God. You know what that reminds that, that reminds me of, uh, and, mm. and, and I hate this. Uh, Neil Gaiman wrote this mm. incredibly irresponsible story called Neverwhere, and uh, oh yeah, one, yeah, one yeah. of the central conceits of this story. And I, I, I didn't read the book, but I saw um, the, the miniseries. It was a BBC miniseries, yeah. Uh, and one of the conceits is um, there's like there's magic in the world. There's magical mm. people, and they like pass it's actually literally and, underground. And, and, and yeah, yeah, they. All these wizards are kind of living among society, but we don't pay attention to them. And why don't we pay attention to them? Uh, oh, the the homeless people that you uh-huh. walk by every day, those are secretly wizards. Yeah. Okay, now I understand secret. Neil Gaiman is trying to empower homeless people, but his conceit, something he wrote into the script, mm-hmm. uh, is that the reason people ignore homeless people is because there's a spell uh-huh. making them not look at homeless it's people. It's a good thing that we do that, mm-hmm. is kind of what it's saying. And there's so, a sp- no, so this has nothing to do with like... Yeah class and being mm. callous as human beings uh-huh. and looking pa- and not and it, sympathizing with these and people. And it gives people permission to do yeah, that, which that, is frustrating. The, the, the attempt to the, empower... Gaiman, oh the God. attempt to empower uh-huh. when done, even if you feel like you're doing it for a good reason, if it's not done carefully and with sensitivity and with mm. respect to r- real matters, uh, can be 
also be shit. Yeah. Unfortunately. So we ran into that issue. Uh, on that note, The Pale Blue Eye, directed mm. by Scott Cooper, a director I'm not particularly fond of in terms of his work. Like, I, I thought I, I Crazy can ta- Heart. I, can leave I thought Crazy Heart was okay. Yeah. Uh, I. Hell or High Water. I did, also no, him, no, or? no, that wasn't him. Uh, what is Scott? He did. Um, Black Mass, which I did not see, so I can't, I can't suppose uh, yeah. that. I thought Hostels kind of missed the thread uh, by a pretty wide margin, although there's some good performances in there, especially um, Ben Foster and Wes Studi. Uh, he also did Antlers, which I didn't see, and he did Out of the Furnace, which I actively dislike. I think that's just a really that's just so muddy and gross, just just yeah. just unpleasant for the sake of being unpleasant. It's it's just. It, 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 it's a its idea of maturity is incredibly immature, if you ask me. Um, but I really like this movie. Pale Blue Eye stars Christian Bale uh, as a retired detective who is called to West Point to investigate what looks at first like someone who has killed themselves. They, they hanged themselves. Mm. But then it looks suspicious because the next morning, the coroner goes to the body and finds out that its heart has been removed. Uh-huh. Suspicious. So, suspicious and macabre. So, this guy, his name is Augustus Landor. Uh, the last story Poe ever wrote was called Landor's Cottage. Uh-huh. Augustus was the first name of Detective, uh, I think it was Auguste Dupin. So, you don't have to know a lot of, this isn't like trying to be super clever, but if you've read Poe stories, they'll go like, oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, so, he's got to investigate what the hell happened here and along the way a particularly bright and intelligent and somewhat maudlin uh, young cadet named E.A. Poe mm. played by Harry Melling who is turning into a wonderful actor. Oh, I like Harry Melling. Harry Melling is great. You might have known him uh, as uh, the, the rather annoying character of Dudley in the Harry Potter movies. Yeah. But in recent years, he's just been d- doing one great performance after another and stuff like mm-hmm. uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Uh, he was really fantastic in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, like, he's just a really good actor. This is a huge... I think this is a huge breakout role for him. Um, this young cadet is interested in the case and wants to help. And so he allows this guy to help and together they discover that there might be some occult elements to it. Although whether or not it eventually goes into full supernatural territory, I will leave to be explored because the movie doesn't want you to know that for a while, whether or not it, it is, is it plausible or not? That's kind of part of the story. Um, as a whodunit, which it kind of is, it's a much more downbeat than a lot of the ones we've been getting lately. It's not mm. fun. It's not cute. It's not fan servicey. Um, it's actually very, uh, depressing and sad, but in a way that feels deserved. It's about okay. death. Um, it, it's actually incredibly engaging, even though it's a relatively quiet motion picture. There aren't like extraneous action sequences that feel thrown into it just to make it thrilling. Um, it is a story about two very bright men surrounded by people who are not especially bright. And they are able to connect to each other, even though they have incredibly different experiences. Christian Bell's character is towards the end of his life and career, and Edgar Allan Poe is just beginning, and he's eager to impress. Um... Melling's performance as Poe is just really, really just 
incredibly well modulated. He is just ever so slightly larger than life, mm. but in the way that certain people are, yeah. because they think highly of themselves and they're trying to be larger than life. And over the course of the film, Edgar Allan Poe goes through experiences that bring him down okay. a notch, and it's very, <laughs> it, it's very dramatically effective. Mm. Uh, it's gorgeously photographed, very very attractive, and and uh, unafraid to be still. Which I appreciate. It's, it feels like a mature production. Um, as a whodunit, I figured it out pretty quick. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not bragging. I'm actually disappointed. I actually was like, oh shit! Did I uh-huh. figure this thing out? I well, did, didn't I? Well, first, we have to knock on the door of Mr. Red Herring. And unfortunately, unlike Glass Onion, which is, again, is very different in tone, but even if you get ahead of the story, there's just so much to entertain you. Mm. Um, if you get ahead of this, there aren't a lot of extraneous characters. There aren't even that many potential suspects, really. Uh, and as a result, it might affect your ability to engage because it, after a while it feels like, okay, but you're going to catch up, right? <laughs> which is unfortunate. But uh, stylish, Smart, great performances, especially Henry Melling, but uh, Gillian Anderson is in this as well. Excuse me, Gillian Anderson is in as well. She's fantastic. All right, the cast is fantastic. Christian Bale, Harry Melling, Gillian Anderson, Lucy Boynton, Charlotte Gainsbourg. Oh wow, Toby Jones, Timothy Spall, Robert Duvall. Oh wait, Toby Jones and Timothy Spall. I'm sold. Yeah, yeah, great (laughs) fucking cast. Do they? Uh, do do Toby Jones and Timothy Spall get to character at each other? Just a little. They're, they're not in every scene together, <laughs> oh, but they're 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 in there. Uh, but no, it's it's just a really great, solid production, and it's about Edgar Allan Poe solving mysteries. But it doesn't feel disrespectful to his legacy in a way uh-huh. that so many of the others do. Um, it's still cute, you yeah. know, just in its construct. Uh, but it works so much better than any of the others that I've seen, and I really enjoyed it a lot, actually. And and again, I'm not a huge fan of Scott Cooper. This is easily my favorite thing he's ever done. All right. So I would definitely say, even though it's getting a little less uh, buzz than some of the other big Netflix movies coming out at the end of the year, like Glass Onion, like Matilda the Musical, um, don't miss it. It's really good. All right. It's really good. Um, okay, we got uh, three movies left. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen two of them. Do you want to? You want to? Let's talk about one of those. Which one do you want to talk about? Um, women talking or Wildcat? Uh, let's talk about women talking. Yeah, that's uh, a good. This movie. is a good. This is a, the latest film from Sarah Polly. Yeah, uh, Sarah Polly wrote and directed it. Sarah Polly um, started her career as a young actress, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, God, I used to watch Avonlea all the time. <laughs> that was a great show. Yeah, like, I was on a I was on a plane once, and it was a plane to Canada. And I was thrilled to discover that one of the things you could watch on the little TVs in the back uh, was like a lot of episodes of Avonlea. Of ro- the ro- and I'm like, uh, Road to Avonlea. It was yeah. originally called Road to Avonlea, but when it aired on the, I think it was the Disney Channel in America, they just called it Avonlea. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, that was a good yeah, show. As, that was a really sweet show. As a, as a girl, she was in yeah. uh, she was in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yeah. Uh, and, Which uh, was a very traumatic experience for her, unfortunately. And she's she, written about it a lot. She wrote about the, uh, a scene where... Uh, there, she had to run through a bunch of explosions, mm-hmm. and she was never reassured. She thought that the world was ending, and she was yeah. asked to do it a couple times. And really, unfortunately, really apparently, she talked to some people who worked on the film, mm. and it was legitimately dangerous yeah, for her. Yeah, and, um, uh, yeah. She she was mm. she was not treated well as a young actor. It's yeah, and, and and that came out, and uh, a lot of people said, "Well, now we can't watch this movie." And Terry Gilliam mm. is an incredibly irresponsible director. Uh, and then she came out later and said, you know what? It's a, still a good movie. Go ahead. Yeah. And, uh, it frightened me, but she, she, I give you permission to enjoy I, it. I recommend, instead yeah. of just going for mm-hmm. the uh, the the gist, mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. of what she said. She's written quite eloquently about it. You can see some articles or yeah. excerpts from her book. Uh, and you can see that it's. she thinks it's just very complicated. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that's worth reading. So don't just yeah. accept the free pass. I recommend you read what she wrote about it because she's very, very intelligent uh, and very mature yeah. about it and is aware I, that there are things that are intensely fucked up, but also... I, 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 I read both content. reports. No, so not you. I mean, I mean people at oh, home. Okay. I, don't just take our word for it. Please read that, because it's not even very long. Yeah. It's it's not like, you know, just... There are excerpts you can read, and it's mm. she's spoken so eloquently about it, and how complicated it is for her. So yeah. just just do yourself a favor. It's, she, she's a brilliant she's a brilliant writer. Yeah, but um, uh, she's also, uh, starting yeah. in 2006... Started writing and directing her own films. Yeah. Uh, so she had quite a long career as an actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in 2006, she made a film called Away From Her, mm-hmm. which uh, is about um, Alzheimer's. About, yeah. Uh, it was a Julie Christie who played a character yeah. at Alzheimer's. She was Oscar nominated um, for that, wasn't she? Uh, I think she was. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a big Oscar darling. She also... Yeah. I didn't see Take This Waltz. I didn't love I didn't it, see but Stories I... didn't Tell either. Take This uh, Waltz is about a, a, a woman who seems happily married and then mm-hmm. she's just unhappy and decides to have an affair and i don't want to uh diminish it in any way by making it seem that simple but um it wasn't my favorite uh did stories we tell which i didn't see uh, uh, but, but now we're on to yeah. uh, her fourth feature film as a director she's written and directed all, all of these movies yeah. uh, and this is based on a novel uh by miriam to- uh, toes i think is her, uh, how you pronounce it yeah and it's about uh, a group of women in an Amish community, some Mennonites, yeah. and the film is not explicit about this until about halfway through, but it takes place in 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't know that right away. Well, because could their, their characters are trying be, to live outside of time, yeah, basically. These, these yeah. Are, yeah, because it's a Mennonite community, it, it could very well be the 1890s. Yeah. Uh, until a truck rolls by and they're playing... A, a, Daydream Believer yeah. by the monkeys, and they're saying participate in the 2010 census, and everything's really yeah, it's very jarring. Yeah. Um, but it takes place. It, it, in, it's almost like an M Night Shyamalan twist, but it's not. It's not. No, it's, it's, it, they're not trying to keep mm, it from you. It's just mm, jarring because oh my god, yeah. that's right. Uh, a group of women, all you know, crackerjack actresses, a lot of. Them. Oh, and what an incredible cast um, this has! It's Rooney yeah. Mara. Claire Foy, so, Jesse uh, Buckley. Uh, uh, two Elizabeth Salanders mm-hmm. meeting in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Frances McDormand. Uh, Sheila McCarthy is an actress who doesn't get enough credit. I think she's actually one of the standouts in this. Yeah, she's, she's excellent. She's in this incredible movie. in this movie. Um, yeah. But all, all of these women have gathered in a bar. And uh, Ben Wishaw is there to take the minutes of mm-hmm. their meeting. Because the women in this community are kind of kept outside. They're, they're forbidden from reading and writing. Yeah, they're, they're not, not allowed, allowed to have, to have information and context. The, so he's there to take the minutes of the meeting. Every single male, every single man on this, in this Wishaw. community, except for Ben Wishaw, is, is gone. And we yeah. learn why pretty soon. Very quickly. Uh, the women have gathered here to uh, determine what their future in this community is going to be. Mm-hmm. They have discovered... Because they caught somebody. Yeah. Uh, that all of these women, every single one of them, since they were young, since they mm-hmm. were girls, were being tranquilized by the men, mm-hmm. given animal tranquilizers, and being systematically and repeatedly sexually assaulted. Yes. And uh, when they said anything about mm-hmm. it, they were told, uh, you had a nightmare. It was a or nightmare. It, it was the devil. Yeah. Something it, supernatural was going all on. All of the men in the community either were in, directly involved or knew about it and did nothing. Yeah. Uh, the men have left to uh, deal with justice on their own terms. Yeah, and basically one guy is now like been 
thrown potentially in jail mm. in the actual like community outside the mm. Mennonite community, and all of the men are there to basically get him out because mm. he has been accused. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they so. left all the women alone, and all the women are decided to take today. And the movie takes place over the less like than twenty four like hours. It's like a day and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're deciding what do we stay, and if we stay, do we demand anything or uh, do we leave mm. into a world that we are completely unprepared for because they refuse to prepare us for that such a thing in order to keep us down they actually they they start weighing out they have there's three options yeah Uh, they 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 can stay and do nothing Mm -hmm. they can just sort of they their their options are forgive them yes forgive these people and and Mm. these are their religion is told them is a good thing it's based yeah based on uh, Mm -hmm. forgiveness and uh the another one is stay in and fight. Mm-hmm. Let's let's which, heart, let's get revenge. Let's harm these guys. Yeah, which is they're they're a little unclear about what form that will take. Yeah, yeah. And the other is we leave before mm-hmm. the men get back. We go. Yeah, and, when and, they get back, we will not be here. Yeah, and yeah. and they'll never see us, and we'll just move out into 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 the world. The, the world of, of mm. the, the term is the English. They move yeah. among the English, uh, and and uh, let, let let the ships fall where they may. And mm-hmm. the entire movie is women talking. It's just yeah. them weighing their options. Yeah. And they are all incensed. Yeah. In their, uh, their, to different degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Jesse Buckley character is a little bit bitter that they're talking about leaving at all. She says, no, I, I've worked very hard and fought to sort of survive through this and I think this is something we can all do and she's mm-hmm. really kind of angry about it. Uh, the Claire Foy character is I will I want revenge. I want yeah. to kill these men for harming us. Yeah. Um it's uh Sheila McCarthy I think is the is she Claire Foy's mother? No, she's Jesse Buckley's mother. I think she's Jesse Buckley's mother. She's Jesse mother, Bu- yeah. Buckley's mother and she's the one who uh is speaks a lot in allegory. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's like, and she talks a lot about her horses and how, yeah. you know, I, when I think about this situation, it thinks about this one thing that happened with my horses and everybody rolls their eyes. Yeah. But she actually like starts to make more sense she, as the she, film she goes She always on. has a point. Mm-hmm. What's amazing about this movie is that, I mean, it feels, it feels like a play. It's very contained and it is very conversational. But much like something like 12 Angry Men, it doesn't feel like it needs to leave. It feels very intense and dramatic just in the situation. And you're watching a whole bunch of people who are clearly fundamentally intelligent. Yeah. Who have very distinct personalities. And even though they're raised in the same community, different values. Yeah. And we see them essentially trying to suss out in a very short amount of time, as respectfully and productively as they can, uh, the feminism that has been denied them institutionally. Yeah. They're trying to figure out what feminism should be as characters who have never really heard about it before. Yeah. yeah. And when you strip away a lot of uh, context and you just make it about principle and make it about something that is so kind of matter of factly, these people have been wronged. There's mm. no other way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and egregiously so. Um, it adds a ton of weight to every single word that's uttered, every word that isn't uttered. Mm. Uh, 
everything they say is just fascinating to listen to. The the only real complaint I have, if anything, is I think Ben Wishaw talks too much. <laughs> like I, I'm not. They they keep talking about what do you think, Ben Wishaw, as a man, and I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm, I'm way not very invested uh, in that. And I, I think I, they, actually, I think he, I liked the treatment of the Ben Wishaw character. Uh-huh. I liked uh, his own attitude toward all this. I I love Ben Wishaw as an actor. He's a very talented he's actor. No denying. That. Um, so I, I think they play fair. I, I don't I don't think they I, like yield the floor to him. I just mm, think he's e- even though he's saying he this isn't my place. I'm actually trying to be a good ally here. I don't want to. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't want to tell you anything to think. Um, I still think that the movie gives him more time to talk than I think it really needs uh, to, based on uh, all the other characters who I'd rather be listening yeah. to. There, there are some interesting concepts that come up throughout women talking. Yeah. Uh, that uh, actually Sarah Polly rather cleverly and deliberately mm. includes a lot of uh, uh, phrases from the Me Too movement. Yeah. Uh, I think somebody says Me Too. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody there's, says there, not all men. Yeah, well, uh, they say, there's, are we, should we really leave because not all the men are doing yeah. this? And then and somebody else, actually says then, not all men, like just yeah. says it out loud. Yeah, but the, uh, but the simple fact mm-hmm. is they're all agreeing to be part of a society that allows this to happen. So how good can they all be? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it, they this is a movie that's trying to strip away a lot of uh, societal context yeah. and is coming to the same conclusion. It's trying to just get to the uh, principle of the matter. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and once you, once you do that, you realize there's no counter argument. Yeah, yeah. There's no counter. And, and there, there's a, a, yeah. an interesting uh, argument that also comes up. Well, we're going to leave all the women are mm-hmm. all going to leave, but, but do we take our male children? Yeah. Do we take a, a boy like as a nine year old complicit yeah. in all of this? And there's some argument. Yeah. Well, Where, are, what's we the leave, cutoff? Do we leave? him into this how old is i have a 14 year old is he is he so completely indoctrinated into this incredibly toxic and indeed criminal masculinity uh that that's that he's gone yeah that he's a foregone conclusion or can we we save him and can men yeah and and i love that this is part of a part of women talking can men be saved the and the answer is, is probably, probably not. Probably not. The, yeah. Yeah, the, this idea that men are just going to be eternally suspect is actually something I really appreciate about this movie. Yeah. Uh, because it's just saying it. Yes, the, yeah. these cycles of abuse, You know, nobody ever says, oh, it's a man problem. Mm-hmm. What, what's the problem with the world? That's a male problem. It is. It is. <laughs> and yes, and it very much says is. It out loud. Yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate yeah. that. Sarah Polly is trying to tell a very topical story in a very kind of unusual way based on a book. I think she's trying to tell it in a way that is would work in any context at any time. I think it's part of the reason for the location it, and for the timeless. Yeah, and, exactly. Like so it takes place in the present and also the past. It is able to feel timely because sadly it is and will be for longer than we we'd like. Uh, but as a result, it can apply in any context, yeah. any uh, uh, group, any uh, yeah. uh, place, and. It's it's so damn smart and so damn dramatic and it's, and so incredibly emotional. The score is amazing. The score is really good. This is a, Sarah, this is a fantastic motion picture. If, if you look at Sarah Polly as an actress, and I've mm-hmm. I've seen her dozens. She's movies, incredibly talented. Uh, she's very talented. She has a very um, 
generally speaking, she she can you know, has yeah. has range, but she yeah. also uh, plays certain character types. She plays very laconic characters very often. Very much so. And I feel like that's her her take as a director as well. Yeah, is that everything is kind of quiet, a little bit downbeat. People mm-hmm. are a little bit more conversational. She doesn't go for the cheap dramatic moments. She doesn't yeah. play big. She there's, plays very very small. In fact, there's one moment in Women Talking, and it's it's uh, where a child. Mm. does something very intense very suddenly and the rug is kind of pulled out for me a little bit yeah. in the moment uh and but because sarah polly isn't the kind of filmmaker that just does that like if you compare the filmmaking just to pick a, another movie that's out this week between women talking and babylon could not be more different Danny <laughs> no, Giselle like is, attitude, is yeah. desperate for your attention he's terrified he's gonna lose you and Sarah Polly is so unbelievably confident and assured that everything that she's showing, even if it's not what we might traditionally consider active, uh, is riveting. That when she does one thing that is just just a little bit of uh, just trying to shake you out of your complacency, like, just wake up, pay attention, it is way more powerful than when Margot Robbie projectile vomits on somebody. <laughs> it's like, it has so much more of an impact. Like, by that point in Babylon, like, I'm already... Like, you've already mowed me down with machine gun fire. Projectile vomit isn't even going to make a dent at that point. Uh. But here, one thing a kid does that's unexpected can come... It's, it's like, just someone, like... It, it's like uh, Ray Fiennes clapping in the menu. Like, oh, God, what the fuck is happening? Incredibly confident direction, my God. Uh, yeah, this movie's amazing. Please see this movie. It's incredibly intense. It's, it should be seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a good actorly showcase. Uh, the yeah. entire cast is great. Yeah. Uh, the supporting characters are really great, uh, and all of the all of the concepts are really really timely and really interesting. Yeah, and uh, and, and I love the approach to it. I love the the drama of it, and I love. Uh, you can tell that the actors are relieved <laughs> that they have something kind of big to do. Meaty. Yeah. You know, something really, mm-hmm. something with real weight and mm-hmm. where every decision you make as an actor, even every bit of line, every every bit of dialogue you've got, yeah. every decision you make about every word and inflection yeah, matters. Yeah, yeah. It's great. No, I, I really do think like this, this has, this feels like 12 Angry Men to me. Different context, but mm-hmm. that same microcosm 12, of 12, social intensity. women now. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, fantastic motion picture. Um, let's talk about a documentary okay. that we both saw. Uh, this is a documentary called Wildcat, uh, which is about, stick with me, a wildcat. It, it's about a baby ocelot. It's about an ocelot. It's about it's a about... Little, little baby ocelot in Peru, and, yep. and it is named Keanu. Yeah. So the idea is, and this is, again, it's a documentary. It's not, I'm not pitching you a story here, but the, the premise of the documentary is it's about... Uh, two people. Uh, one is a young woman who uh, is trying to spearhead animal recovery and rewilding, which is to say taking animals that have been taken out of the wild and making them self-reliant enough to exist in the wild safely and healthfully even and, and not domesticate them, mm. uh, but while caring for them, which is complicated. Uh, and do that with carnivores, which is especially tricky. You have to teach them to hunt while also teaching them to be domesticated enough to trust you. Very difficult. Uh, and along the way, she employs uh, a guy who has, was in the war, in the Middle East. He was deeply traumatized by it. And it becomes very clear early on 
that he is has gone to Peru and he's getting involved in living in the jungle and only hanging out with big cats uh, as a way of dealing with his mental illness. And at first it gives him purpose. It gives him love. He has to care for a cat. But when things go badly, as sometimes they can in that situation, mm. and I'll say this right now, if you're concerned about, if you're, if you're someone who... Uh, can't deal with anything bad happening to animals like you just you don't want to see that movie there's some harrowing things that occur in this movie and you should be aware of that before you press play because it might be very upsetting otherwise um, it's not overall the most depressing movie or anything like that but n not all good things happen uh, but he is destroyed and when the opportunity comes to focus his efforts once again on rewilding a baby ocelot um he makes it deeply personal and becomes self really self-destructive. Yeah. And the, his relationship, which has turned romantic with this other woman, uh, is becomes part of, uh, of essentially an abuse cycle. Yeah. And well, so although it's a film about rewilding an ocelot, and the ocelot is adorable, this is a film about mental health. It's it's a film about trauma. Uh, yeah. It's a film about uh, depression. Yeah. It's a film about how that depression can affect the lives of the people around you. Yeah. Uh, it. I find it a, a little bit fascinating how the filmmakers decide to sort of uh, hide the fact that this man, who's rewilding the ocelot, Harry Turner is his name, uh, was actually having a, re a romantic relationship with uh, with this woman named Samantha. I don't Zwicker. think they're hiding it so much they as they just don't say it they out loud. They don't say it, and it's not until they start. Uh, it's not they're not like trying to we, spring something on no, you they, but uh, the they, we uh, show them being like intimately friendly we just don't see them cuddling yeah, for a long time like, you know uh, like so they're swimming together they're they, they're clearly close yeah, but it's but, not abundantly clear that they are functionally dating until later. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, we hear from both of them about the state of the relationship. Harry becomes very unstable throughout a lot of this. He actually, you know, has a couple breakdowns. He self harms, and we see that on camera. So yeah. if if, the, if you're sensitive to that, then you know, keep an eye out for yeah. that. Yeah, this is this um, could be a very intense movie. And uh, yeah, we get to sort of see his attitudes. We get to see him meet his family. His little brother, who is actually sort of a, mm. a bright point in his life. Yeah. Uh, it, it it's very much about his survival as much as it is, as it is about the ocelot. And the film doesn't play too mawkish with the parallels. That's clearly the narrative they're yeah. building uh, between the man and the animal. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty, but, it's pretty, it's pretty clear what it's, they're doing. It's a little bit more down to earth than that. Uh, there is uh, there is definitely a tendency in this kind of a story to over-sentimentalize it. And, yeah. um uh, I, I compared it before to a, a nature documentary that Disney might have put out in the 1950s. Uh, just, and here is the gentle animal, and we're going to yeah. let it back. Or Disney Nature, they're still doing it. They're still doing it. I saw uh, one like a couple years ago that was about, and here's what it's like to be a baby seal. Yeah. yeah this seal's they're... name is Dave. And it was like, and then occasionally there would be like, oh no, this mm -hmm. giant sea lion is going to kill it or something. Like, that's bad. Yeah, they, but like they're, they're trying it's still to be trying to make it cute. Yeah, they're trying to be frank, but yeah, they're also trying to make it very sweet and yeah. uh, very, very uh, it's, easy it's, to accept. It's hard not to look at a baby ocelot and think, "Oh, it's a sweet animal." It's a very sweet animal. It's so goddamn cute because it's because it's a little baby ocelot. And it's yeah. cute. It's a cute thing. But there's another ocelot uh, earlier in the film that doesn't fare so well and yeah. actually does come come about to a pretty dark fate and. Uh, so th this one's a little bit more blunt about that. It's not yeah. not trying to do the Disney sentimentality. No, it's very uh, and, and it's I very it's very emotionally naked yeah, actually. And I appreciate yeah. that. 
it's ultimately a pretty simple story. It's pretty yes. straightforward. Yeah. Uh, it it's very brief, and it doesn't feel like uh, there's like all documentaries. I feel like, there's I feel like it's a little long. I feel like it, I feel like it kind of it starts repeating itself a little bit. I yeah, feel like it, uh, it, it could probably be condensed and still tell the same story as yeah, well. It does. It, I think it was filmed yeah. over the course of uh, like a year and a half. It, t- it takes them eighteen months to uh, oh, get this uh, it's a little longer than that because like we see like him get there and everything but the main story of this one ocelot named Keanu mm. that's a story of 18 months yeah. give or take yeah the, the, they the, they need to uh, get this cat back in, out into the wild to mm. sort of keep the program going yeah uh, and so it so we get to learn about this program as well. Let me look up the yeah. name of the, the preserve. And, and it's so weird to watch this because it's called, you're watching... Uh, uh, yeah. Nueva is the name yeah. of the, uh, the You're watching this program, and on one hand, I it, it, I don't disagree with it in premise, but when you're watching it and you're seeing just how this cat is just wants to be domesticated, it wants to just like, hey, can you just take care of me? And as a cat lover, as someone who has two cats... Mm. A part of me is like, do we have to rewild Keanu? What if Keanu is fine? Who are we to say? Okay, you, you know how I know. Uh, I know how you can keep a large dog. Yeah, and you know why you can keep a large dog? Yes, because dogs are pretty docile animals. Yeah, and a big a big dog is like Marmaduke. It might knock yeah. you over if it's tame. Yeah. Uh, you notice that people don't have cats that size in their apartments because we're not allowed. Because they'll fucking eat you. No, I know. There's actually. <laughs> No, no, I will say this. this. I'm saying this as a cat lover. I understand even, the practicality. Even a tame lion is going to fucking eat you. There's an incredible motion picture uh-huh. called Roar, mm. which was made by... Uh, was, was it, it was Tippi Hedren. Tippi Hedren, yeah. It was Tippi Hedren, her husband at the time, and Melanie Griffiths in it as well. Uh, That's a, when she was young. When she was very young. She was like a teenager because this is what her family did. And their family had big cat preserves. Like, this was like their family uh, uh, pet... Uh, uh, charity basically they wanted to have sanctuaries for big cats they love big cats and they wanted to make they made an independent movie about big cats now on one hand that sounds kind of nice in practice it's fucked up because Roar is a story about a guy who owns a big cat preserve but there are no safety features whatsoever. The cat's coming in, in and out of the human dwelling. Yeah, like there's there's no there's no fences, there's no protections for for the humans. He just trusts the cats. And this is true on the set. This isn't like they're faking it for the movie. He's doing dialogue with other actors, progressing the narrative while a fucking lion, a giant full-size lion, <laughs> adult lion walks well. up to him and he's got to interact with that lion too and not freak that lion out and every once in a while the lion will try to nip at his neck which is a kill move <laughs> and he has to play it off like oh he's so playful the cat just tried to, to kill you on camera and you kept acting yeah, and yeah. then the plot of the movie is that guy has to leave the sanctuary for like a day or two to do some bureaucratic stuff to try to keep the sanctuary and what he doesn't realize is that his family who was coming to visit gets there early and they don't know that there are no protections at this mm-hmm. cat sanctuary so they're just walking around the house and it's like the fucking strangers <laughs> where they don't realize that there's a tiger behind them and then the t- and then they attack mm-hmm. 
The movie was originally marketed as a funny story about cats when they finally re-released it, like, I don't know, like five, seven years ago, something like that now. Uh, it was reframed as a horror story. It is legitimately one of the most terrifying motion pictures I've ever heard because there are no protections. People got seriously injured making that movie. Uh, Jan de Bont. The, was the was the director the, of photography? Cita- yeah, cinematographer. Yeah, he was. You you may know him. Uh, he worked with Paul Verhoeven a lot. He eventually directed Twister and Speed. Was scalped by a cat, <laughs> and went back to work <laughs> afterwards. It's not a great idea. To, so I I joke, point, but it's not point, a great idea. I admit I know this. The, the point being, <laughs> yeah. if you try to keep an ocelot as a pet, I know you're you're probably. That thing's gonna that's eat why, your hands off. That's why I want him as a roommate, not a pet. Okay. Yeah, totally different. There's there's different rules. It's a, um, that's, yeah, that's why when yeah. when people own cats, they're a certain size. I know. I'm, I, the, I, these little, I little teeny tiny cats. I, 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 would lo- I would love to have a, an ocelot or a margay or one of those yeah. uh, not too large big cats. There, there's an interesting thing. Getting back to Wildcat. Uh, there's an interesting thing about Wildcat because again, Wildcat is mostly about trauma and mental health more than anything else, even more than about the cat. It's very telling that the story of the the human characters and what they're going through finally hits... There's a siren outside, by the way. I don't know if you can hear that. It's not us. It finally crests. It finally hits a point where people have to progress and and, and deal with their lives and their trauma with, like, one phone call Hmm. to a mental health professional. Yeah. Um... Which, again, you're just... So I'm watching this movie, and I'm a proponent of therapy. Therapy has probably saved my life. I'm watching this movie, and I'm just like... Instead of encouraging you to take to take care of big cats, we should be encouraging you to go to therapy some more. Because you're dealing with a lot of really difficult things. And while there's a certain romance to the idea of finding your mental health in the jungle while you take care of a baby ocelot... Mm. I also want you to take care of yourself <laughs> and stop hurting people around you. Yeah, and and it's, it's, I, I, I don't want to be too judgmental because it's documentary. It's a real person, but there's a part of me where I'm like, I kind of just wish the documentarians would take the guy aside and say, Hey, you, you want to talk? Cause you should be talking to someone yeah, professional. Some you need someone who can really help you with your problems. Cause I don't think the ocelot is the person to do that. Well, people uh, find uh, their help in different ways. Oh, their, therapy is not a, a universal cure. I agree with and, that. Uh, I agree with that. I understand. And, and people need different kinds of therapy. Sometimes yeah. they need to talk to various therapists before yeah. they can find one that, that works for them. If they can find any at all. My point is it becomes uh, clear that the ocelot thing isn't working for this guy. Very yeah, well. yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he needs to do something else. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit yeah, harrowing like, from a mental I, I, health perspective I, yeah. to see someone who desperately needs help and, and isn't and, getting it. And we it. get to see him break and have mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. have tantrums and breakdowns yeah. throughout the course of this movie. It, it's it's pretty intense stuff, uh, but uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's pretty good. It comes it comes to a straightforward conclusion. Yeah. And then I think there's only one film left, and there's yeah, no you, good segue. You, you saw uh, music. There, let's see. There's there's no cats in Matilda. There are no cats there's, in Matilda. There's no. there's, uh, there's a fish or there's a guppy a frog there's some kind of a water newt. it's a newt That's there's a it. newt uh matilda uh specifically the movie is called and i think it's to keep this clearly delineated from the danny devito americanized adaptation of roald dahl's uh, book matilda 96 yeah. yeah around there uh but the new movie is officially called roald dahl's matilda the musical 
which I feel is probably a little more information than we need, but regardless, clearly not tell, the Merrill Wilson film. I can tell from the title that yeah. Roald Dahl would have hated this. Ah, you, Roald Dahl would have hated anything. Well, he, he was very misanthropic. He was very way. misanthropic, and, and listen, I grew up reading Roald Dahl's books. And indeed, specifically Matilda was my favorite book growing up for a long time. Okay. I, I loved this book. Matilda was a story... Oh, still is of a, of a I, I was more of a the witches guy but it's yeah. a good book yeah. uh, but did you ever read matilda i read matilda okay I, so I read matilda read charlie and the chocolate factory sure. uh fantastic mr fox i think i read practically every children's um, book he ever read Marvel, wrote, uh, george's right. marvelous medicine yeah uh, yeah i was, I was easy a big fan. trot the fantastic mr fox uh, i was i was a big the fan twits. when i was a kid oh, the uh, twits. <laughs> twits is a mean book um Roald Dahl wrote a series of children's books. He also wrote more, like, sort of Hitchcockian kind of thriller stories for adults. Um, but he became best known for his kids' books. Um, and his books were, at their best, uh, books that understood that for children, life can feel very oppressive. You have no power. You have no agency. And eventually, if you're unlucky... You find that you find that you are surrounded by adults who are not concerned with your best interests and might not be any more intelligent than you are, if not less so, uh, and might even be ghouls. <laughs> and you're going to have to find a way to survive and do something about that. And I, I don't know a single kid who I grew up with who didn't sympathize with some part of that at some point. So a film, uh, sorry, a movie like a, a book. A book initially, like Matilda, which is a story about a young girl who is preternaturally gifted, like reading at a college level in like the first grade, uh, who is born to parents who are abusive, dismissive, mm. uh, and actively hate her. And then they're, yeah, they're greedy and they're shallow. They're, they're just, they're just terrible, horrible, abusive parents. Uh, and so at first she thinks going to school is going to be the thing that saves her because she's going to be able to go and get educated and meet people. And what she discovers is that school is also run by shitty adults, in particular, uh, a principal the, named Miss Trunchbull. The Trunch, the Trunchbull. The Trunchbull, who is this monstrous... Uh, a person who actually physically harms the students. He like picks a girl up by her pigtails, by her hair, throws her over a fence, throws her over a fence, and, and there's a fable quality too. Very so much so, but there's also like, a, there's also a nugget of truth. Like people in it. aren't like breaking bones and crying and bleeding. That's and true, but there is a nugget of truth in in something that is said in Matilda, which is that uh, if a child tells a, a parent. Hey, that person hit me. Mm. It might be more likely to believe them than if you tell them something that sounds outlandish. Fantastical, yeah. And even though that's very specifically to designed to get the plot, there is an unfortunate tendency for people to say, "Oh, well, I believe the adult." You know, to not believe the person making an accusation of impropriety or wrongdoing. Mm. And that's terrifying and unfortunately it, that can happen so matilda speaks to something that i think a lot of kids feel like this is the idea that we're trapped and matilda is so repressed she is kept uh being educated at a level much lower than she actually needs mm -hmm. uh she has no outlet for her creativity or her personality and she ends up actually developing psychic powers because her brain has nowhere else to go <laughs> And she ends up using that in order to liberate herself and her school. Um, the, the, 
The book is mm. way better than the movie. Agreed. Uh, Especially Dan- the original movie. Dan- yeah. Danny DeVito has uh, a certain kind of wild style that yeah. I appreciate, and uh, he, he plays the abusive dad in that movie. Yeah, uh, Ray Perlman Ray- plays uh, his wife, and that always makes yeah, sense. And, and, uh, I forgot the actress who played the trunch bowl, but she was re- oh, yeah. really quite good. She's very good. Um, they, it, it's but it, it's, it's an adaptation. It's, it's um, it's very American. It's very yeah. energized. It's really colorful and stylish. Yeah. The, the the book is a lot like grayer and more bleak, but in an appealing sort of way. It actually yeah. carries more of that fable like quality. It, it, it feels a little bit more Dickensian in its oppression, yeah, I think. Yeah. Whereas Danny DeVito made an American movie set in America, mm. where the context is just different enough that some of the events of the book just don't. Feel, feel right, right yeah. like you don't feel like they belong in this exact setting. That feels like you should have adapted them a little bit stronger if you're going to change it to America. Uh, Mar Wilson's really, really good in it, but there's this general sense of, even though like the Trunchbull can be really scary, there's this general sense that everything's going to be fine. Yeah, you know, there will be a dance number where we mm. magically dance with all the things we're telling, we're floating with our mind, and um, it's and all, well, that's it's like, yeah, I mean, there's nothing really wrong with that. It's a little pretty one, and she's yeah. like, uh, yeah. yeah, kind of floating things around. The and, and listen, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not really the tone yeah. that the mo- that the book existed for. And so, well, I like that movie fine, and I wouldn't tell anyone not to see that mm. movie. I knew there was a better version of Matilda out there, and while I still think this one has flaws, I think it's I think it's a better version. Okay. Um, this is an adaptation. It's, it's based of the, on the Broadway musical. Yeah, it's based on an adaptation of the musical. Uh, a musical I've never seen, but I am familiar with the soundtrack. Soundtrack is great. Okay. The soundtrack has some really great numbers in it. Some of who, which who are wrote, who wrote the music? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, I don't know that off the top right. of my head. Um, some celebrity songwriter. Uh, possibly. It was directed by Matthew Warkus, who did direct uh, the the musical as well, and in. in uh, is this, England. A, is this a feature film or a this is a feature film? This is this it's is not, not this is not a, a this is not a film stage. Play. Okay. This is not like what they did with Hamilton. Like they made a, a film and they they made it cinematically. Um, one second, I'm trying to see who did who did the music. Tell me, <laughs> Tim Minchin. T- oh, I, I think I know Tim Minchin. Tim um, Minchin, who is uh, 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 has done um, uh, some music. Thank he you. Did. You're welcome. <laughs> it's very helpful. Uh, he did. I guess he did a musical based on Groundhog Day, which I just heard about now for the very first time. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's actually got some really wonderful songs. There's some really good uh, sort of power ballads for children. Uh, there's a great one called "When I Grow Up," mm-hmm. uh, talking about how you feel really powerless now, but when you grow up, you'll be able to do the things you feel like you can't do now. And it comes at a very low point in the story, and that's very effective. Um, Ironically, even though that's probably the most iconic song from the musical, mm-hmm. uh, it's the one which is the staging is the most whiffed, I think, in okay. the movie because it feels like instead of being a story, a song about how children who are at a really low point are trying to pick themselves up, it feels like they're not engaging mm-hmm. with what they're going through and are trying to engage in escapism. So it's about kids like imagining when I grow up, like when I grow up, I will do all the things. But like now all of a sudden the kid is riding a motorcycle and it's really cool. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't think it's about escapism. I think it is about having an end game, having like a goal. And I don't think that one really works, but most of the other ones work right. Mm-hmm. Um, parts of the story are streamlined. Um, Matilda's brother, out of the story, he was never terribly important anyway, I don't care. Uh, the first 
part of the story where Matilda realizes that her parents do not love her and the only way for her to maintain her sanity is to use her intelligence to exact small forms of revenge upon them. Mm. Um, That's streamlined quite a bit. I think the song where she's singing about sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty is done a little too triumphantly for how early it is in the movie. Like, hasn't quite earned that yet. Uh But it's still very, very good. Um, And then once she gets to uh, the school... Uh, things really pick up quite a lot. Uh, there's a joke in the movie, not another teen movie, where they get to the prom at the end of the film, and someone says, wow, you know, you'd never know what to look at them, but literally every person at our school is a professional dancer. I always forget about that. <laughs> and all the kids are just incredible dancers, and they're yeah, just really yeah. energetic, and every time they stage this musical number with all the kids, you're just like, how are they that good at dancing at that young an age? Like, it's it, it's wild. Um, the Trunchbull is played by Emma Thompson, She's their big get, you know, the person who wasn't in the stage play, but like Emma Thompson is like going to bring you a little bit more celebrity. She's the celebrity. Um, She's good. She's not the best singer. And some of like, she's got a big number that's about more. um, That's a little bit more about like, I am a very model of a modern major general, just very much about sort of British exceptionalism and propriety. And they really tone that way the fuck down Uh for some reason. I don't know why. Um, Lashana Lynch plays the kindly teacher who realizes Miss Honey. Yeah. She plays uh, the character who acknowledges that Matilda is bright, but no one will listen to her because Mm -hmm. she too, as we learn in the story, uh, grew up, uh, in an abusive household and she has internalized a lot of that. And Lashana Lynch plays that really, really well. I love that Lashana Lynch is getting more of a moment, uh, between this and the woman King and the last James Bond movie. Um, I'm waiting just for the, her to oh, properly she, break she, out. She's, she's cool. terrific. She's, she's, all, she's already gotten the public's eye. So. If they have to recast con- Wonder Woman, get get her. Out. She'd be amazing. Like, <laughs> she'd, she'd kill it. I, I love her yeah. pieces. She's very good in this. Um, so, Wonder Woman, sure. <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying that's the solution to all of our problems. I'm just saying give her a blockbuster. I, give her a blockbuster. Her. She can carry it. Like she's amazing. Um, uh, the the main star, uh, the the young girl who plays Matilda, whose name is something, which I forgot to write down because I'm terrible at this. Alicia Weir, she's great. She's an incredible performer. She's a good dancer. She's a great singer. She conveys a lot of the inner tor- turmoil of Matilda really, really beautifully. Uh, mostly, it's a really, really good adaptation. The songs are really, really great. There's a couple of stagings that are kind of meh. Um, but I think it comes across the uh, the level of oppression and repression that is in the text. It's not shied away from mm-hmm. the way it is shied away from uh, in the American uh, version. Uh, Andrea Riseborough plays her mom, and she is just oh, she's wonderfully. Love, she's playing it like I she's like she's playing it like she's in like strictly ballroom, like she's in like a oh. Baz Luhrmann <laughs> movie playing a terrible person. She's her, her and uh, Stephen Graham play uh, the the parents, and they're they're just really really great. They should have gotten her and Nicolas Cage as their characters from Mandy. That would have been great. <laughs> Oh, no, they have to be abusive. They're actually really gentle characters. Those are really there, wonderful yeah. characters outside of the context of Mandy with the shit that happens to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really like this movie. I, it's it's one of the better Roald Dahl adaptations. I, I wouldn't put mm-hmm. it in the best category. Uh, uh, but it is. Yeah. It, it mostly captures the book really, really well. Uh, and I, like I, and I like of, it. I like it a lot. I feel like none of the, the film adaptations of Roald Dahl have gotten the spirit of the author. Uh, some of them have been fun. Some, co- some come movies. very close. Um, some come very close. Mm-hmm. I would argue that the witches, but the Nicholas Rogue movie, yeah, uh, 
if you take away the mega happy ending, which feels really tacked on, yeah. well, I feel like that one gets it pretty close. The mega happy ending, and it, it unfortunately, uh, the main character is nothing in that movie. That's He's, that's like, true they, for they a lot of Roald Dahl they stories. Don't, they don't though. give him a lot of character. But I think really that's true for a lot of Roald Dahl stories. Um, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Charlie would, is nothing in that book. I, I suppose so. I, I think the one that came closest, at least to, to, to my eye, uh, in terms of its playfulness and how gross and strange it is, was Steven Spielberg's The BFG, which mm. was a big bomb. Yeah. Uh, but I think it got sort of the spirit of the book right. I like that one. I, the one I think is the best adaptation, even though it's not strictly Roald Dahl, uh, is Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Mm. Fox, which becomes its own entity. Yeah. But I think it's an exceptional entity, and I really do love that movie oh, to pieces. I, I adore that film. Yeah. I, I feel like it, But it's a it's, very liberal it's a, adaptation. It's more Wes Anderson than it is Roald Dahl. No, but it's definitely using Roald Dahl as the framework, and mm. I think uh, uh, you you see it. I mm. think you see the Roald Dahl in there. Uh, I love Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the Gene Wilder version. It's an odd film. But I think it's... <laughs> it, and it weirds me out that Roald Dahl didn't like that version, because I really do feel like that captured most of it. It also made Charlie a more interesting character and added an element at the end that makes Charlie actually deserve the chocolate factory beyond just being the last one to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that's a really good adaptation for the most part. Uh, so I like that one a lot. I think there've been good uh, Roald Dahl stories uh, turned into movies. Very few of them nail it. Yeah. I know. I think only like three or four could be argued to come like really close yeah, to nailing yeah. it. Uh, no, and uh, there have been a lot of duds. <laughs> yeah, Nicholas Rogue's The Witches is all right. Yeah. Um, uh, Robert Zemeckis' The Witches is not all right. Oh, I think that's the worst adaptation uh, we've uh, had yet. It's, it's just... Um, uh, there's I, a, there's It's not a total wash because like Stanley Tucci's good in it, Octavia Spencer's good in it, mm-hmm. but in service of what? Yeah, no, they, they they change the context, but they don't have anything meaningful to say about that. They, yeah, they, yeah. They, they recontextualize the action in a way that could have brought up a topic and then they don't approach it. Well, they double down. Uh, and this is unfortunate because Roald Dahl, if you really read his work, um, he was prone to gross stereotype. Uh, he's mm. got some characters who are treated in a very racist way. Mm. He was uh, very famously not uh, a very uh, woke person. Um, he's also just an asshole. It's, it's, it's almost uh, like he was a British man born in 1910. I, I'm not. I'm not uh, saying there isn't an explanation. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, just saying. I'm, I'm just for, saying. I'm not forgiving it. No, no. That's, that's the world is. When, when you read some of his stories, you'll even ones you like now, you'll see that there's some real cringe in there, and there's an undercurrent in the witches that's very much anti unattractive women uh, witches are all unattractive women that's all they're all si- single women who are unattractive and like to hang out in each other's company uh, they're all evil and I'm like mm, that's something we're not really interrogating very well and I think Zemeckis's film especially the ending that they changed is weirdly antagonistic about women yeah. Uh, whereas I think Nicholas Rogue's version, it's in there, unfortunately, but no more so than any other story about witchcraft, which, again, needs mm-hmm. to be interrogated. But Zemeckis' one is pretty pretty dire. Um, but anyways, this Matilda, it's it's good. I like this Matilda. I do. I, I think there's, there's a few things that could have been better about it, but I like it a lot. I think it mostly does the book some justice. Um, and I, I loved that book. That book was a lifeline for me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm happy to report this movie's good. Um, all right, time to wrap things up uh, with our review roundup. We review movies on a scale of uh, C minus to C plus. C plus is a movie we genuinely recommend. We mm-hmm. either think it's quite good or we think it's the best movie ever made. Anything in there? Better than average, C plus. A C is average, mixed bag, more for one audience than another. Some good, some bad. 
average C. And C- minus is below average. We generally don't recommend the movie, and we either think it's just not very good or we think it's terrible. Mm. On that note, uh, Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical. Uh, not without qualification, but I'm giving it a C plus. I think it's worth checking out, and I liked it a lot. Okay. I, I think it's just a genuinely, <clears throat> me, a genuinely well made musical that mm. mostly captures the spirit of what it's trying to do. Yeah. Kudos to them. Okay. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, Wildcat. Well, Wildcat is a C. It it yeah. could be. Uh, could, to to your point, you, to use your words, you said it's uh, its message is pretty simple. It's pretty forward and direct, and uh, it's not yeah. uh, t- terribly sophisticated in the way it goes about it. It's an important story, mm-hmm. uh, and this uh, man is definitely healing, uh, but it's, as a film, it could have been a yeah. lot more impactful. Like, we need more films about how to handle mental health and, and watching people actually go through uh, real mental health issues, and this is certainly an interesting context against which that happens. But yeah, ultimately, the takeaway is relatively straightforward, and it's... Uh, the Ocelot does a lot of the heavy lifting. I love that Ocelot. <laughs> but yeah, I can't, I can't give it more than a C, unfortunately. Uh, let's see here. Uh, women Talking. Uh, w- women Talking is a C plus. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a really wonderful ensemble. I love the, the mm. strength of its drama. I love mm. uh, the approach to the material. And I love how topical it is. Yeah, it's incredibly intelligent. It's b- And even though it, it's uh, confined, it's uh, in a very small location... Uh, it feels just wonderfully cinematic. Every mm. single decision Sarah Pauli makes, I think, was pretty wise. Uh, so, yeah, please see it. It's a huge C+. Uh, the Pale Blue Eye uh, is easily the best Edgar Allan Poe Solves Mysteries movie I've ever seen, <laughs> and there's a weird number of them. Uh, and I think Harry Melling really makes the movie work even when the story is just okay. Right. Uh, so, stylish, exceptional performance at the center of it. Worth seeing, C+. Uh, what we got here? Living. Uh, living is, uh, I guess that's a qualified C plus because mm. it is an amazing story. Yeah. It's just a story you've seen. Uh, <laughs> it's a story you're really familiar with. Uh, Bill Nye is excellent and it is incredibly reaffirming. It is very moving, mm. but, uh, it, it's something I know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, glass onion, a knives out mystery, a big C plus, one of the most entertaining movies I've seen all year, but in a very intelligent way. Uh, it's just as pointed and topical and, uh, 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 incisive, I think, mm. is the original Knives Out, but I think the mystery is actually a little cleverer, uh, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And Kate Hudson, Oscar run, please. Someone mm-hmm. do it before it's too late, because she's really amazing in it. Uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Uh, I've, I mean, it... There's nothing offensive about it. Mm. I, I want to give it. I want to. I want to give it a C, but you know, because there's there's nothing I hate about the movie. It's yeah. not bad. It's just kind of a. The worst thing you'd say about it is that it's a bland children's entertainment. Yeah, I, I wrote a review of this for the rap, and at the end of the review, I was like, I'm not a hundred percent sure if this is a positive or a negative. It's really mixed. No. Um, ultimately, I find it a little dreary, more so than it should be. Oh, uh, and I wouldn't, call, uh, wouldn't call it dreary, but yeah, it, it hit me as dreary right. just because of the way it handled. Uh, it's again, it's an existential crisis kids movie. It's mm. a weird, it's a weird beast. Beautifully animated, but uh, yeah, I can't give it more than a C, and All I right. think it's a rather a low C. But it's it's I wouldn't call it bad. Uh, and let's see here. Lastly, last but not least, Babylon. Uh, ba- Heaven help me! I'm giving it a C plus. Uh, wow. I, I just I enjoyed how wild it was. I enjoyed how uh, this this weird sort of uh, Ralph Bakshi esque counterpoint to uh, singing in the rain. Uh, the, <laughs> well, that's I, a good I description. Can, yeah, I can I can kind of appreciate how how wild he's going for. Does he always land? No, but I appreciate the ambition. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna give it. A, I'm gonna give it a C. 
Uh, I think it's 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 way too sprawling and and uncontrolled mm-hmm. uh, for its own good. Even though I know oh, that's okay. the point, that's, I don't think that, I don't that's think that's what I like about it. Is I don't lack think of it, control. I realize that, but I don't think it, it amounts to very much when no. that's a problem. When it's it, it's this much investment for that little mm-hmm. takeaway, um, I don't think he earns. Uh, his, his, his when the movie ultimately reveals itself right at the end. Mm. Here's what we were getting at, folks. Um, I was like, yeah, you didn't earn any of that shit. Uh, but I'm not I, saying I wasn't entertained throughout okay. parts of it. Uh, definitely excellent stuff in the movie. Scenes I'm really, really glad I saw, but I don't think it quite works. So I'm going to give it a, a straight up C. Anyway, that is it for Critically Acclaimed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Next week, we'll be back uh, with our picks for the very best films of 2022. Did any of the films from this week make the list? I don't know. Maybe we reviewed some really good movies. It's possible. <laughs> But uh, we shall see. But we've also been catching up on movies, so even if you've listened to every episode uh, we've done, there might be some surprises, so uh, be sure to check that out. And then, of course, the new year will begin at pace, and we'll review new movies after that. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. What is our P.O. Box? Uh, send us an actual physical letter. The Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, <clears throat> Los Angeles, California, 90064. We have to wrap this up because our voices are dying. Yeah. Um, but uh, we are also uh, have a Patreon, patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork, uh, where you can hear our shows without any ads. Yeah, it's a treat. <laughs> uh, and that's even for $1 a month. But we also have a lot of other tiers which offer exclusive podcasts where we review every single movie ever nominated for Best Picture and now Best International Feature, which we plan to record a new episode of that soon. Uh, we do a show where we review every single episode of Star Trek in order. We do commentary tracks, uh, Discord hangouts with our patrons. It's a lot of fun. Thank you, everybody who subscribes. We couldn't do this without you. You rock. Uh, so yeah, I uh, hope you're having a happy holiday, whether you're celebrating something or just hopefully getting some time off, and uh, certainly have a great new year. And most of all, never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>